This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, I think it's a big episode, not necessarily a special episode, but I think we have a lot of important things to talk about, a lot of topics that people want to hear us talk about. So I just thought you deserved, you know, kind of a special intro for today. Sadly, this podcast will now never see the light of day because we will be copyright striked. It doesn't matter if it's on like megaphone, as long as it's under 15 seconds on a podcast, you're fine. If we were uploading to YouTube, which we do did our last live episode and we got copyrighted strike copyright strike whatever i don't know what it's called that happened but this is just going up on you know wherever you get your podcast so it's okay i think we're fine oh we should play more music then we should have you know the the holy wars by uh, megadeth every time we talked about the holy hour we've been missing out man we could put all kinds of copyrighted music on this podcast to further our careers Maybe a little Def Leppard. Maybe a little Def Leppard. What do you think? According to you, they suck. <laughs> according to the meme of this show, they suck, and according to Gerard, they don't suck. So we're kind of at a, a kind of at a standstill. So we need. Are we at uh, an impasse with Def Leppard? By the way, it is Def Leppard, not Def Leppard. Just in case those who don't know and want to actually look them up for themselves to figure out whether they suck or not, you make the choice, hairstylers. You Death make Leopard, the choice. Thumbs up or thumbs down? I think they're thumbs up. I think they're a decent band. They're a little hairbandish, a little eighties hairbandish, but who who isn't eighties hairbandish these days? These days, well, considering it's not the eighties anymore, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know, Gerard. I wasn't alive. I didn't. I don't oh, know. Oh wow, child, the innocence. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, people did not tune in to listen to us talk about 80s hair bands, even though I'm sure a lot of people would love to, at the end of the show, hear your thoughts on that, because Gerard can go for hours. There have been times we've just, like, talked at a passing event, and, you know, he just goes in on on the classics and the, and the, and the greatest rock bands and heavy metal rock bands of all time. But that has to be saved for the end of the show or after the break, because right now we have some USC recruiting, transfer portal, spring game. There's a lot to get to today. So, Gerard, are you ready to just dive into all this, all these things we need to talk about? I'm ready to dive into the second window of the porthole. Head first. Head first. Not feet first. Head first, he says. And before we dive in head first, just a quick thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. You know her. You love her. That's Meredith Schlosser the number one real estate agent in Los Angeles. 
with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Again, the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. Thank you. Now, let's get into the cold open. We were debating about what to open with with the cold open. We could have gone several different ways, you know, with the spring game just happening. But we decided it makes sense to just jump in with the second transfer portal window. We teased it a little bit in our last episode going into this weekend. It opened on Saturday. It will be open until April 30th, a 15-day window as opposed to the 45-day window earlier in the offseason. But we're here. There hasn't been a flooding of USC players, and there's been a couple, including a new one, which we'll talk about. And obviously, we're going to talk about Bear Alexander and a certain offensive lineman, one not coming in Ethan White and one possibly coming in Cameron Johnson who is going to take a visit to USC. But we'll get into more of that detail. Right now, we're just setting the tone for the transfer portal and what has happened in the first couple of days that we've gotten there. we got some interesting names we're just going to throw out there. These aren't names necessarily that USC is recruiting right now, but they're just names to maybe store in the back of your mind. The first thing I do want to talk about is that USC did have another player enter the portal Cortland Ford declared his intention to enter last week. It was not officially in. He did officially enter the portal, the veteran offensive tackle. But a new name entered actually right before the portal officially opened because he is entering as a graduate transfer. That is former four-star cornerback, wide receiver, athlete prospect. Joshua Jackson started out as a wide receiver out of Narbonne High School, but then flipped over in his second year in spring to cornerback. And he actually had a really, really good spring camp that year in his first year at cornerback. Made a lot of interceptions, making a lot of plays, drawing a lot of rave reviews from Dante Williams and a lot of the coaches. But a shoulder injury, just couldn't shake it and he couldn't stay on the field. Lost the end of that year to injury. Lost all of last year's spring camp to injury. He was rehabbing with Damani Jackson. And then this spring camp, he was also rehabbing some sort of injury. I'm not sure if it was the same one or whatever. But... As you know, if you're injured and you can't get on the field, you know, your chances of sticking around aren't that great at a, at a big-time college program. So Joshua Jackson, he is in the portal as a graduate transfer, wishing the best, got to know him uh, pretty well at Narbonne High School. He covered a lot of those games during the recruiting process. So Joshua Jackson is another scholarship that is open for the Trojans. Yeah, and Joshua Jackson, you talked about it before, made that transition over from wide receiver to cornerback. Sort of as a wide receiver, he had a little bit of Tyler Bonds to his game. He was very smooth, had long arms, uh, wasn't the fastest in the world, but had really natural hands and caught the ball effortlessly, really good ball skills. The speed aspect of his game was a little more methodical than he was sudden. And you kind of wondered with that transition, is cornerback going to be a good fit for him? Uh, Obviously, you have the hips which are always a question, you know, when you have to make that transition out of your back pedal and run with the receiver. But top-end speed for cornerbacks can be an issue. It depends on what kind of coverages you're using. It depends on what kind of pass rush you can get and how quickly that quarterback has to get the ball out of his hands. But if the offense is able to get the ball downfield and you don't have a cover to 
coverage with the safety over the top, then you've got to have a cornerback that can play man coverage and can run with those cornerbacks. So that was always kind of the question about Josh Jackson. He did have those long arms, and, and that's something at six foot, you know, is coveted very much in a cornerback. So USC made that move, and they put him over the cornerback, and they were very excited about him. I remember Dante Williams talking a lot about him, uh, both on and off the record, about his potential as a cornerback, but then got hurt, and you have a new regime come in, and it just seemed like he was on the outside looking in. USC kind of recruited over him with guys like Damani Jackson, then you bring in uh, the transfers like Makai Blackman, and that makes it even harder to be able to sort of get a foothold and be able to compete for a position. So he moves on. Uh, USC, uh, you know, they are going to need a influx of uh, defensive backs here coming up soon. You know, that young group that we saw last year is starting to get a little older, and you're starting to see now there are some guys that are in their senior seasons, although they have two years of eligibility left with the COVID waiver. But definitely that position, that room, is getting a bit older. And so uh, you have a a loss here in Jackson. It'll be interesting if USC wants to make that move to replace him out of high school, or do they go back to the portal? And that's something that we're seeing sort of evolve in front of our eyes in terms of where the priority is. And, you know, the coaches are going to say one thing and they're going to have a a certain outlook on it, but then, you know, actions speak louder in words in terms of uh, the players that they're actually signing and bringing into the program. The other kind of small USC note that we're on is kind of, quote unquote, Miller Moss watch. You know, obviously Caleb Williams returning, going to be the starter going to 2023. Where does Miller Moss lie with them signing Malachi Nelson, the five star prospect in the 2023 cycle? Will he be bumped? Will he stay as the backup? Will he enter the portal just to see what's out there? Will he go to another school? He has his degree. That was kind of what the thing he was waiting on going into the spring. You know, he's going to go through spring cramp get that USC degree, and then kind of figure out what the next steps are. You know, he still has not entered the portal. I haven't really heard much on that in terms of, you know, if he's going to go, still waiting to see. I'm sort of kind of leaning towards the the thought that he might stick around. You know, he gets to be the backup to Caleb Williams. And right now, based off the spring game, I feel like he would still be the backup going to 2023 just because of the experience, the – the experience in the system. He said year two in the system, as opposed to Malachi Nelson coming off the surgery in his first year as a true freshman. I still feel like Miller Moss has that upper hand, despite Malachi Nelson being a, you know, former top 10 prospect or whatever you, I still believe he will be the backup if he stays. So, you know, that has, that has, he has that going for him for potentially staying. But again, we still have to wait through these two weeks to see what happens moving forward with Miller Moss. But as of right now, you know, no updates on that front, but just wanted to put that out there. Throughout. I don't know if you have any uh, other thoughts or if I can move on. You know, I think Malachi Nelson made it more difficult for Miller Moss to make a decision whether to stay or go, because at this point last year, everybody was just writing off that Malachi Nelson was going to be the second string quarterback. He's Lincoln Riley's guy. Lincoln recruited him personally, and he is the heir apparent to Caleb Williams. Now, within context, we have to remember this, that Malachi Nelson is still recovering from an injury. It's his non-throwing shoulder, but nevertheless, in terms of your motion and just the confidence and everything, you know, it takes you a little while to get back into true form when you've been away from the game a little bit. And that surgery did 
take him away from the game for a little bit. So I don't know that we saw 100% or, or certainly Malachi Nelson uh, in his prime, ready to go, ready to compete. But I think from the performances at the spring game, you know, Miller Moss was was definitely more comfortable. I think he saw the field a little better, made some better throws. I don't think either guy really blew anybody out of the water with their performance. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think Miller Moss necessarily just was like, wow, okay, you know, he's the guy right after Caleb. Like, they're not going to to miss a step here, miss a beat offensively. I think clearly you see that the offense is going to be a bit different. There was some talk during the telecast about how they're not going to have to change the offense a whole lot with Miller Moss having Caleb Williams in there. I think that's completely false. I think you do have to change the offense. Miller Moss has certain strengths and certain weaknesses that are different than Caleb Williams. And Caleb Williams, let's just say it, he is potentially a generational talent. You know, we're going to see how he closes out his career here in this next season with USC. But it's going to be a bit of a drop-off if you're expecting the offense to operate in the same way, the same fashion that it has under Caleb Williams if Miller Moss is taking over. That's not to say that it still can't be a very good offense. It's going to be different, however. And it will be different even with Malachi Nelson if he ends up being the replacement for Caleb Williams down the line. But I think between those two, it's definitely a little more murky. I don't think, uh, you know, certainly Malachi Nelson didn't do enough during the spring to say, wow, he's going to be the guy. And Miller Moss did enough to say, you know, Miller Moss could be the guy. He could end up taking that spot, being the starter. It's going to change the offense. There's going to be differences. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not like he's not going to be able to be a Division One quarterback and win games for USC. For sure. So we'll keep, you know, you updated on whatever happens there. But as of right now, nothing really new. Again, I'm still in the, the camp that I think Miller Moss is going to stay at USC, grew up a USC fan. I know he would love to get some more time this year. Hopefully, for the sake of the offense and the defense, they can, you know, put up some more points and keep some points off the board and let Miller Moss get some get some reps in the second half. So we'll see what that looks like and within the next obviously little little under two weeks as we go through the rest of the portal. Moving on now, we're gonna get into some names that have hit the portal that have you know come from other schools these are guys that i've been putting on uh my tracker that i built uh for the start of uh the transfer portal window you can check that right now on ucpool.com i'm updating it pretty much every day and again these are not necessarily names that usc is actively recruiting now these are just names that i'm putting out there that are interesting not necessarily they, they are they fit certain needs but they also don't work on some levels because some of these guys, you know, haven't been productive. Some of these guys were former top prospects and they haven't, you know, done a lot at, at where they're coming from, or, you know, they have very limited production production. So Gerard has talked about, about this many times, you know, going with production over what they were coming out of high school. And I guess the first one that that fits with is Savelle Smalls, you know, the former five-star Defensive lineman, edge rusher out of Washington, signed with Washington, and USC was involved there a little bit, but always felt like the Huskies would lose. Well, he is in the portal. He has entered about a couple days ago, something like that. Now, again, this is a guy, do you think about taking a shot on Savelle Smalls? He hasn't done a whole lot, 32 
total tackles, one tackle for loss, and a fumble recovery in three years. That is, you know, not the production that a lot of people predicted for him when he was coming out of high school as a former five-star prospect. USC has one of those players right now, and Corey Foreman, you know, still looking to break out. And Corey Foreman was ranked higher than Sabelle Smalls coming out of high school. So is this a, a thing where you can look at and maybe, you know, they had injuries or maybe they just needed a new change of scenery? Again, this is not necessarily a predict a, a, a spot USC needs to fill with someone who hasn't had a lot of production, but just an interesting name to keep in mind. Now, I'm just going to knock out a bunch of these guys because right now there's like five defensive tackles that I have on the list that I'm just going to put out there. You know, there's Antavius Woody, again, just a guy who a six foot three, 295, 300 pound defensive tackle out of Alabama, uh, transferred out of Florida State. USC offered him when he was, uh, I forget what cycle it was. I think it was 2021, but he was an unranked prospect when they offered him. And he could have played offensive line or defensive line. He seemed to have a little bit of interest in USC, but you know, very quickly those Southern schools, those uh, schools in the South, sort of put a fence around him, and obviously ended up signing with Florida State. Started out as an offensive lineman, then flipped over to defensive lineman this past year. Played on their scout team. Obviously has no college resume at this point, but I just put him on there as maybe like if you have an extra spot and you want to maybe build that defensive line for the future. Obviously it's a big, you know, SEC country kind of body at six foot three, pushing 300 pounds, you know, maybe a guy you take a flyer on, but again, you have other pressing needs depending on your scholarship spots. Uh, there's D'Angelo Carter. He was someone I put in who was in the portal before uh, the second window opened on Saturday. Again, six foot two, 300 pounds, a guy who would be a space eater for you in the middle you know, not super flashy, 19 tackles, two tackles for loss, one and a half sacks, three quarterback hurries. You know, he is being courted by some schools, though, Texas, Ohio State, Arkansas, and Louisville are all sniffing around him. So, again, maybe a plan B kind of option for USC if they would want to pivot, but just another very large human being for the interior of that defense. We've talked about uh, Sio Nofo Agatoto. Ah. I, I think I said that right. That was my best attempt at it. We've mentioned him several times in the war room. Indiana prospects, six foot three, three hundred fifteen pounds. We've mentioned him before. He was in the portal prior to the second window opening. USC has had some communication, but definitely feels like a plan B option. They were waiting to see what other options were going to enter at defensive line, and obviously one pretty big one did offer. So again, I would say Co is a very deep down the line plan B option. Another option is Jeffrey Mba. Mba. I don't know if I said that right, but he is, if you recall, USC offered him out of junior college. He was the number one overall Juco prospect in that class, a five-star prospect, six foot six, 305 pounds. I was in communication with him for a little bit. He said he was definitely going to go take a visit to USC. He was like, yeah, I want to come to USC. And then, you know, the coaching stuff was happening, so he ended up never making it out. Obviously, he has some sort of interest out of USC, or at least initially did. Again, a guy who is relatively raw and doesn't have a ton of production at the college level with Auburn. Uh, nine tackles, excuse me, nine game appearances, seven tackles, and a sack, and a forced fumble. 
uh, last season. So not a lot there. But again, six foot six, three hundred and three, three hundred and five pounds. Is that something you got? Is that someone you look at and be like, hey, we could do something with him. We can mold this piece of clay. And then the final defensive lineman I have right now is a fan favorite of mine. And by fan, I mean me, uh, Ty, Tywone Malone, a Ole Miss signee who is now in the portal, six foot three, six foot four, 315 pounds out of Virgin Catholic, New Jersey. I was a big fan of him coming out of high school. I drafted him in our USC football kind of mock draft uh, piece that we did that no one really cared about. But I drafted him. I loved his tape. He's also a pretty good baseball player, played on Ole Miss baseball, which, you know, SEC baseball is a very big deal. So he is a dual sport athlete. Again, six foot three, 315 pounds. That's a body you can use and maybe a guy you take and stash. Didn't have a ton of production as well last year. I think he had like something like 10 tackles and a sack for Ole Miss. But again, I think that's a guy maybe you you take a flyer on. And that would be the one I would probably grab outside of all the names I just listed. So we'll see what happens there. But Gerard, just giving you a chance to speak. I named a bunch of defensive players. Anything you want to add on any of those guys or anything you've noticed about any of those guys? None of them plan A takes uh, from mm-hmm. my view. One thing to interject, just a correction. Uh, the first window is 15 days, just like the second window is 15 days. The only reason why the first window goes longer is because you have that dead period with Christmas and the holidays in the middle of it. So that's why it was the 23rd, and then it didn't actually end to the 18th because you had that dead period right smack in the middle of that first window. But you get 15 days, it's 45 days uh, as a whole, um, both windows together. And um, so you're basically getting uh, the entirety in which those guys that are wanting to transfer, that's when they have to announce. It's not necessarily when they have to take visits. It's not, you know, a window of when they can commit just to sort of go back over, you know, sort of the rules of the game for folks that are are, are thinking that, you know, this next, uh, you know, 15 days is, is when everything has to happen. <laughs> it's not. It's not going to all happen. Um, there's stuff that's going to probably happen in June. It could happen all the way into July. I think for the most part, the colleges are going to press to try to get these guys in uh, for, for you know, maybe some some summer workouts, maybe at the back end. But we know that, you know, Jordan Addison, I, I, I can't remember exactly when he officially announced his transfer to USC or when USC announced it. But I, I feel like it was already like in July because we were yeah. coming from OT7 and the Elite 11 in Vegas, and he actually was on a plane uh, with some of the players that were coming back from that Elite 11 Vegas regional. And uh, somebody actually from our message board saw him on the plane, and we were scrambling to try to get some type of confirmation, and we did. And then we were told, hey, but don't say anything. You know, it's very sensitive, blah, blah, blah. Pitt is making a big deal of this. And it was like we kind of had to sit on it for a while. But um, yeah, so this is not something that's all going to happen, you know, in, in, in the near future here. There's going to be uh, a little bit of draw out in terms of uh, who USC is going to be recruiting and who's going to be taking visits. But we should know from a talent pool standpoint here uh, in the near future what we're looking at with the second porthole window opening up. Um, in terms of those names, like I said, not a lot of guys that jump off the paper in terms of their production. And like I said before, 
you've got to evaluate these guys, what they're doing in college and not what they did in high school. You can't have nostalgia and say, oh, this guy's a former five-star. I remember recruiting him. He was so good in high school, but, you know, he only has three starts in two years. He only has 10 tackles in three seasons. That's not good enough. That's going to get you in trouble bringing in transfers like that. And obviously there's potential issues as to why they didn't play and produce for the colleges that they're at. Maybe there are injury issues. Maybe there are behavioral issues. There's things that you have to vet during the recruiting process with high school kids, and you have to do the same with transfers. And transfers, to me, it it shows red flags much more overtly because they're former very highly thought of players that go into college and those college coaches want to play those players. People get fired when you have a five-star guy that ends up not doing anything. That's an issue. That's a problem. And so trust me, they're giving every uh, chance to be able to go in, compete and win a job. And they weren't able to do that. And so again, those are red flags that you have to vet and they're there. You just have to kind of figure out what the backstory is uh, or you're going to end up, you know, bringing in some dead weight potentially on your roster. And USC had done that in the past, you know, in the Clay Helton area, you had a few players that uh, in terms of their medical conditions, it was clear that USC did not do a very good job getting the info that they needed to get to be able to evaluate whether they're going to be able to play at USC. And Jake Smith being one example the other being Isaiah Sopcher, two players that really didn't do anything at USC, barely practiced at USC. And it, luckily for USC, they were able to shuttle off the roster and didn't get those guys on the roster as did Wade, who decided to medically retire. And then, you know, you're basically uh, having to take that um, for however many cycles they have left uh, for academic eligibility, because that's the rule now. So, yeah, uh, you've got to be very careful uh, these days in terms of who you're bringing in. And then to round out the group of interesting names on my list is two offensive linemen, one being interior offensive lineman Preston Nichols, who is coming from UNLV. It's initially a college of Charleston Southern transfer. He is another like kind of plan B option I would keep on the table. A six foot two, 290 pounds, started every game at left tackle last year for the Rebels. So Obviously, USC is in the market for some guard help, particularly left guard. So just a name to keep in mind, Preston Nichols out of UNLV. And then the other one who declared his intention early before the the uh, portal officially opened was Matthew Wyckoff. He is a former – he is a – not a former. He is an all-SEC freshman selection from last season, played center for Texas A&M, Due to injuries, when injuries hit the offensive line, he stepped up. He's a pretty massive center. Let's say that's six foot six, three hundred and twenty pounds. So that is a massive center. So does USC need center help? You know, you could talk me into it in terms of having a veteran backup because they do not have one right now. They've been, you know, they've well, been. Technically, I mean, if you're saying a veteran backup from the standpoint of somebody that has a lot of playing experience, no. But they do have Andrew Millick, who played both guard and center in the spring game and is someone who has played center uh, for them the last really couple seasons, uh, but mostly in practice. Doesn't have a sure, lot of Sure, he doesn't have a live game snap at Correct. Center. You know, Quinones is another guy that's been around that's played some center for USC in the past. In the spring game, he played exclusively guard. Um, so they do have some guys there that are older players. 
Uh, just not a lot of experience after Justin Dijic at the center position. I should clarify, yes, experienced centers. You could maybe talk to me into you could talk me into agreeing with that, but I still feel that those needs are with guard and obviously left tackle, as we will talk about later. But Wyckoff obviously has a relationship with Coach Henson, who recruited him. But six foot six, three hundred pounds center, you know, he maybe has the flexibility to play a little offensive tackle, play a little offensive guard. Whatever they may be, I'm not sure, but Matthew Wyckoff is obviously a name that the Paris style has jumped on as, look, he has all these connections with USC, Coach Henson, let's make it happen. So they're very much on the Wyckoff train, but we'll have to wait and see. Just an interesting, uh, the last interesting name rounding up my list, Gerard. Yeah, and I think, you know, of all those names that you mentioned, he is the guy that has actually played, showed some production. So showed a little promise. Yeah, center, is, is that the position that you would feel like you would want to bring him in at? Uh, I guess it depends on some of those backup players you have. Obviously, Michael Benuelos, uh, the four-star center that you're bringing in from Burien, Washington, is another guy that is in the fold there for potential um, competition behind Justin Dietrich. Definitely, uh, in terms of what USC has used and what they have at center, Completely different body type. I mean, 6'6", 320 is completely different than what they have, quite frankly, almost across the board on the roster. So you would wonder, you know, is that the position that they would actually bring him in at? Maybe they want to shuttle him over to play some guard. He did step in because of injury. So, you know, maybe center is not necessarily the end-all, be-all position for him. Maybe it's not the position he really wants to play. It's tough to know. But uh, I think with the interior the way USC has done things and using Andrew Mellick again as an example, they're moving their guys around. And, and that's mm-hmm. something that's smart. If you can have guys that can play multiple positions, that gives you more depth. You know, you have those bodies on the roster, but if you've got guys that can play multiple positions, then it really it sort of extends your, your depth that much more because if somebody goes down, you're able to just move guys around and you don't necessarily have to just have a brand new body come in and play that position. So um, you can extend the amount of talent that you have in that room a little bit. So, yeah, that's a, an intriguing name, uh, definitely. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why that might be more intriguing now uh, than it was, uh, you know, maybe a month ago, um, I think, in the podcast when we talk a little bit about Ethan White and we get into uh, his transfer and what's happening right now with his status in USC. Do you think it's time to officially move on to the big topic at hand. Yeah, because there's one name uh, talking about all those defensive linemen on that list that you didn't mention, which I know right now Trojan fans are salivating going, wait, 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 wait. When was this recorded? What, what's going on? Why, the, why are they not mentioning the, the bear in the room? Uh, what's, what's going on here, Chris? We have one other potential prospect that is in the porthole officially that seems like a guy that USC might want to go after. Right. And we were saving the best for last. All these names we mentioned, you know, kind of backup, plan B, maybe even plan C. But the one clear plan A option is Mr. Ursine Alexander. And yes, if you don't know what Ursine means, it's the scientific name for Bear. That is Bear Alexander, the Georgia defensive tackle, former top 50 prospect, Texas native by way of IMG Academy played a lot for 
Georgia, uh, all all games or twelve games for them, I believe. He started the national championship, had a couple tackles for a loss. You know, a pretty good true freshman season, but he is opted to enter the NCAA transfer portal. He made his intention clear before the portal opened, and he is officially in the portal. And he is be he is taking an official visit to USC this very weekend. He posted uh, the little graphic on his Instagram story about within the last hour or so. Things are moving quickly for Bear Alexander. And the thing that got everyone, specifically the pair style, all foaming at the mouth is that uh, Rusty um, Manziel at our, you, our Georgia site reported right after he entered that uh, USC figures to be a player here. And he also reported that, you know, USC might even be the favorite going to this one to to land this. And a lot of people, you know, Josh Pate, our national uh, on-air talent, even said on a show he would put his chips on USC to land Bear Alexander. So all the momentum is pointing to the Trojans. I'll just say this, Gerard, USC cannot let that man leave Los Angeles. Very interesting turn of events. You know, we're all looking at the spring game and we're looking at the recruiting list for the spring game and it's a little underwhelming. And then Bear Alexander name comes up before he actually officially hits the portal and Rusty reports, watch for the Trojans here. And so... And no one cared about the spring game after that. <laughs> nobody cared about nobody it. Nobody cared. At the spring game, it's like, wait a second. So is he at the spring game? Barry Alexander, uh, Keithy and Deshaun Alexander, this is a full name, his government name, uh, he was not at the spring game. However, uh, someone who handled his recruitment out of high school, Tony Jones, was at the spring game on the sidelines, took a couple pictures. I think he had a picture with uh, Gavin Morris and uh, a couple other people, uh, which obviously helped confirm uh, the interest in USC. And so he's made that official visit for the April 21st through the 23rd. And we're going to see if USC locks it in, if this ends up being one of those quick sort of boom, 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 transfers USC, it's official, and he gets on campus and he gets to work, or this gets drawn out a little more because obviously mm-hmm. you always have people who start talking about tampering and what have you. Um, you know, we saw what happened with Jordan Addison. We saw what happened with Mario Williams and everybody kind of felt like, okay, USC is the clear leader out of the gates, but those recruitments took a little bit of time. Jordan Addison took a visit to Texas. There was a little more that went into it. So we're going to see if this, uh, gets done quickly or there's a little bit of open-endedness to it. Uh, I will say this coming out of high school, I do remember Bear mm-hmm. Alexander as a recruit, USC did try to get a foothill uh, into his recruitment and really couldn't. NIL was talked about as being a main facet of his recruitment. And early on, it was really Texas A&M, which everybody thought he was going to go to. And then he took a visit to Miami. And then Miami became a school that a lot of people started attaching to his name. Him going to Georgia actually surprised some people out here. Um, It was a wild recruitment. And people thought, okay, you know, Miami, Texas A&M, five families of NIL. He's probably going to go to one of those. And then all of a sudden, Georgia kind of grabbed that momentum really quickly. And boom, he ends up committing to Georgia. And there was some back and forth there when he was committed to Georgia. And there was some rumors and some talk 
Maybe he would decommit, uh, but it never came to fruition. So his high school recruitment was a little wild. And so I caution people with that. You know, this is one of those things that, okay, everything we've heard, it's USC, USC, USC. And it's like, okay, cool, cool. But knowing that his recruitment out of high school was kind of wild and, and kind of interesting in the background with all the talk that we heard, you know, you do have to put a little bit of caution and say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see if USC gets this official visit and locks him in the following week or this starts to go out a little longer into the summer and he takes other official visits. Um, I would say that certainly from an impact standpoint, this is a pretty big deal for USC. And I, I know I'm not going to get into breaking down the spring game because I know we have that on the docket and we'll talk about that here in a second. But just in terms of what USC doesn't have personnel-wise, Barry Alexander is that guy. And Barry Alexander is not only just a former five-star. As I just said, that shouldn't really mean a whole lot to USC. What should mean a lot to USC is what did he do in college? What has he done at his last stop in college? And he was a productive player for Georgia. You know, he was able to see the field despite a pretty stacked group and get two sacks in the national championship game. That's pretty solid. That's pretty good. So you're kind of crossing that off, you know, on your checklist of things that you want to see from an evaluation standpoint. And he, he brings that to the table. So that's obviously a big thing for USC, uh, being able to get an interior defensive lineman and, and getting an interior defensive lineman that has shown some promise at a former national championship school where you, you have a ton of talent at that position. So it's definitely a big deal from that standpoint. We're just going to see how it plays out. Gerard, you of all know you of all people should know that we don't go by government names on this podcast. I literally call you Hurricane. Yes, but other people call me Gerald, and I've come to that. <laughs> My other little point about this is that I saw someone hypothesize say that Bear Alexander is the most important Lincoln Riley recruit since obviously Caleb Williams. Is that fact or fiction? To you? That's fiction. I mean. Well, okay, it, they're not comparing it to Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams obviously would be more important. Caleb Williams is basically going to be the face of the program. Uh, he had started in numerous games for Oklahoma, and he plays a quarterback position, which is the most important position on the field. So from that standpoint, Caleb Williams is more important. But the next most important, I mean, I think there's definitely an argument for that. Eric Gentry was pretty productive for Arizona State, but in terms of the position that he played, and the position he was coming in at, I don't think people felt like, oh, my gosh, this is this huge need necessarily. I think when people look at USC's roster, um, there's a big gap in terms of talent and in terms of physical prowess on the interior of the defensive line. And we saw a little bit of that uh, during the spring game, but we saw most of it last year. And we saw undersized defensive tackles, uh, guys that were coming out of high school that were 240, 245 pounds starting for USC and, you know, doing yeoman's work. Uh, I, I've said this before. I think the defensive line actually kind of played above their heads a bit during last season. Uh, truthfully, I think the second line of the defense is really where USC in terms of expectations and talent were disappointing the most. Uh, but certainly you just need bigger, better players in the middle. If you're USC, you don't have anybody there that is really a good run stopper that can eat up space like a guy like Bear Alexander, who's super quick, got great feet, you know, he's 300 plus pounds, he's strong, and he has some natural pass rush skills. But more than anything, he can 
really demand a double team in the middle of the defense. And USC does not have that whatsoever. I mean, USC's defense in the interior, you could basically run trap games on them and just allow those guys to almost go unblocked and just, you know, have them kind of run out there and just do some misdirection. So, yeah, from that standpoint, Beryl Alexander would totally change how you have to approach that defense. Now, there's plenty to get into as to, you know, how you would use them. and and Sure. We don't want to get into that all the way right now. Yeah, we, we could get into the weeds about, you know, how he changes maybe the scheme. He's definitely different than the defensive lineman that USC has actually even recruited uh, from the standpoint of even the high school players for the most part. I mean, he coming out of high school, you know, he was 320. He's actually dropped a bit of weight uh, to become a little better pass rusher and what have you. So he's, I believe he's closer to like 300, 305 pounds. Uh, but he's definitely a guy that is a true nose tackle that, again, can really, you know, be able to, to command some double teams at both in the run and the pass. And that just frees up everybody else. You know, he, he's the type of player that can make a lot of players around him better. And, and that's something that USC just doesn't really have on the defensive line. Gerard, he's a literal bear. A literal bear. You well, want that in the middle of your defense. A okay. literal bear. He's literal by name, but um, <laughs> we'll we'll see. Uh, you know, and and again, you know, you have to sort of transition that to like putting him at USC and what they do, and if he fits, you know, what they do, and and you know, you can look at it in a vacuum and say, oh, well, you know, there's this former five star player who's really good at Georgia, and but you also have to understand, you know, who he is playing next to at Georgia. Um, you know, the double teams that some of those guys were taking because he was just a true freshman. You know, I mean, TCU and some of these other schools that they played didn't care who Bear Alexander was. He was the new player. George has got plenty of other guys that are good players that are veterans on that defensive front that you had to worry about more than Bear Alexander. So when he comes to USC, it's going to be a little different scene. You know, there's going to be a lot more focus on him. And um, yes, it will open up other players, but he's going to have to probably fight a lot more double teams than he ever would have seen at Georgia. And that's one of those things that, you know, when you want to be the guy, okay, well, you're going to be able to be the guy, but you're also going to have to take a little bit of that focus. And the fact that the offensive coordinator is going to start to see you and they're going to want to scheme against you. Um, So it's one of those things that, you know, synergistically, it gives a big boost to your defense overall. We've talked about USC's defense improving and the two stats I feel like they really need to improve on to get to that potential championship level. It's it's the rushing game. They have to be better stopping the run and, and yards per carry, and especially in the second half, yards per carry, and not allowing offenses to get gouging runs on them in the second half. You know, it's not necessarily something that they give away consistently, but all you have to have is like two or three runs there where you've got, you know, a 15-yard or a 20-yard run, and that sort of changes the dynamic of a drive. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, that offense is, is getting near the web zone, and they're going to be able to score on you. And so that's something that they, they definitely have to, to, to improve on uh, quite a bit. And, and I think just in terms of big plays, you know, USC has to be very uh, – they have to improve a lot on that, which is, you know, a, a combination of your pass rush and a combination of the way the defensive secondary is playing. But statistically, you can't allow – uh, teams to get those big plays on you and and those those drives that's the thing is the drives that they had in the second half which were these quick drives these two minute drives you know USC would be at a point where it looked like they could pull away and then it's like the other team comes around and, and they're down maybe two scores but you you allow a team that's down 17 to score under two minutes 
And all of a sudden, it's a game again, man. It's like totally changes the dynamic of, of how your offense has to play and how you have to play. So I think there's definitely two major aspects of what USC has to do better next year that Barry Alexander could impact. And again, we're not really going to get into fully where how you would use him, where you play. But we would just say getting him would be a massive home run for Lincoln Riley and this defense, defensive recruiting through the portal. You know, pair him with the the offensive, the excuse me, defensive line you've already brought in with Keon Bars, Jack Sullivan, and then former five star and Anthony Lucas. Throw Bear in there, and it's a really, really good haul up front and you could even start all those guys at the same time because Anthony Lucas could play Russian and has been playing Russian. So it would be a massive addition. Again, he is taking his official visit to USC this weekend. You, if you're USC, you gotta maybe lock it up. I haven't seen a lot of other schools that are like publicly out there is recruiting him. I think the only one I've, the only other one I've seen is Texas is trying to make a push for him. And just a correction from earlier, D'Angelo Carter, who goes by Trill, Trill Carter actually committed to Texas earlier this week. So he is actually off the board and is going to be a Longhorn. So he is out there. So I know Texas is in there for Bear Alexander as well. But for right now, USC is getting the first visit, which, you know, in transfer recruiting compared to high school recruiting, I feel like the last visit is always the most important one for high school recruiting. But it feels like the first visit for transfers it's kind of flipped, if you know what I mean. Getting them first is the one where you can really lock it down. Yeah, because I think most of these transfers, most of them, they don't want the process to linger on too much. They've mm -hmm. gone through the recruiting process out of high school. A lot of these guys are top guys. And it's not like they're trying to relive it, which, you know, at face value, I thought when they changed the transfer rules and then you had the transfer portal – I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you're going to have all these guys taking five visits again, and they're going to milk a whole other process out of this. And that's just not how it goes. It seems like, you know, a guy like Mason uh, Cobb is a good example. And when I talked to him after he committed to USC, he was so relieved. And he wasn't a guy coming out of Pogo, Utah as a three-star that was like a mega recruit that had all this attention. So you would figure from that standpoint, He'd want to take all his visits and get, you know, all the love, all the red carpet treatment he could, but he was over it. He's like, yo, man, <laughs> I'm ready to, I was ready to shut it down. Uh, I, you know, I felt good about USC going into the visit and on the visit, I knew immediately, boom, like I'm, I'm good to go. This is it. And I, I couldn't wait to shut things down. So a guy like Bear Alexander was a former five-star for a little bit. I think he ended in the service rankings as a four-star he was a five-star, I think, coming out of Denton, Texas, uh, until, you know, he went to IMG. And then, you know, IMG, I don't really remember what kind of performances he had at IMG, but obviously not to the point where people felt like, um, you know, he was still five-star level. Uh, and, and so that's interesting, you know, to be able to, to kind of look back at that. I think so many top guys go to IMG and you just kind of lose track of them. You know, they've got a bunch of good players. Uh, unless they're out here playing modern day and then you kind of take note of, OK, so who do they actually have this year? Guys come and go. And it's uh, it's kind of hard to keep track of. But um, he ended up as a four star, but still a guy that was absolutely recruited by everybody. Like I said, you had Miami in there. You had Texas A&M in there early. And then Georgia swoops in. Uh, USC was trying to get involved. But again, it was one of those things that, you know, you heard a lot about NIL at the high school level. And I think this is another instance which really sort of confirms 
that USC is going to play the NIL game, but they're not going to play it for a whole bunch of these high school guys. They're going to wait and they're going to go after the transfers because they feel like that is more of a proven commodity. If you can get a guy that's a freshman, sophomore, junior, and he has some college tape and you know he's the real deal and he's unhappy and he wants to go somewhere else for whatever reason. And the reasons given for him leaving Georgia are, are pretty vague. You know, it was kind of basically playing time. There's a couple other guys there. Uh, that they really liked in spring ball. I haven't heard a whole lot about injuries. haven't heard a whole lot about anything off the field that would chase him out of Georgia. Um, and remember, you know, Georgia's had some guys enter the portal and then come back, guys that they did not want to lose. So that's also something you kind of keep in the back of your mind is, as well. You know, that, you know, Georgia, um, you know, there's always that potential. But, you know, well, like, yeah. I just want to interject. Chris Hummer did follow up after – a bear had entered is that usually the, with the financial aid, he said that with bears case, it is actually listed as canceled and schools will kind of leave that open if they think they can get them back. So that kind of says that maybe Georgia doesn't think that they can get him back. If his aid is now listed as being canceled, that's something that Chris Hummer reported earlier this week after he entered Okay, well, that's a, that's that's an interesting, good note to, to be able to put in there. I just remember Amarius Mims mm-hmm. when he transferred out the former five-star offensive tackle, and then he was quartered by a bunch of schools, took a visit to Florida State, took a visit, I think, to Miami, or he was scheduled to take a visit to Miami, and I think it was reported by one of the outlets that he had committed to Florida State, and it got out there early, and it was kind of broken, uh, maybe before it should have been posted, and... Then Marius Mims decides to stay at Georgia. So I, I always have, you know, these things in the back of your head. You sort of catalog these instances. But that's a great note because that does reinforce that potentially, you know, Georgia knows he's gone. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting recruitment uh, in, in situation, you know, with how things went down at Georgia because he is, again, a player that actually played for them last year and showed a little bit of promise. But certainly – in terms of the importance that he has within the defense and a program, he's going to mean a lot more to USC at this point in time than he's going to mean to the Bulldogs. And with that, we can move on to the event that Bear Alexander sort of ruined in the morning, that was the USC spring game, because as we mentioned, he declared his intention to enter the portal. And then that's anything, anything anyone could care about at that point was Bear Alexander, and no one cared about the spring game, but we were at the spring game. You watched the spring game. People have gotten my thoughts on the spring game twice via tunnel vision and instant analysis from Saturday. But, Jar, we didn't get your thoughts. So where do you want to start in terms of the spring game? That was 1-42-34 by the USC defense. Yeah, by the USC defense, who I think got a a review – for a interception turned towards them, which I guess ended up being the difference in the points, which was kind of curious. Well, off, the offense kept the points is what I ref, what I recall. So, so they, they got the, give they the, got defense the, the points after they supposedly overturned it and said Jacoby Covington got the interception. Over I think they gave them the points, but they also let the offense keep the touchdown. I oh. I don't. Know. It was it was it was a bunch of Pac-12 nonsense. It was a bunch of Pac-12 nonsense. I I I don't know what to happen. The guy on the 
the announcing it didn't seem to know what was happening. I still don't know what happened, but for whatever the case, all we know is that Jacoby Covington got an interception, and after that, who knows what happened? But he didn't because but, but he also didn't. Play, yeah. it didn't look like he really actually did intercept the ball. I mean, in the end zone, it looked like Dorian Singer actually had the ball long enough that they would give it to the offense if they actually reviewed it. So I don't know, but nevertheless, yeah, you know, the defense won. Uh, we did a recruiting angle piece on this and got into, you know, the nuts and bolts of some of the unofficial visitors there and how the game went and how the game might play, you know, toward their viewing and their perspective, which is always something that, you know, we're, we're trying to look at in terms of when you're on the, the, the clock and you get these kids in person, a spring game can be a showcase for you from a recruiting standpoint. And, and coaches know, even in regular games, that they may want to feature certain things because of the kids that are in attendance. And I, I've seen that in certain games uh, with certain teams where, you know, the game plan, it sort of seems to revolve a little bit around like, hey, we've got the top tight end in the country. We don't throw the ball to the tight end a whole lot. Time to throw the ball to the tight end in this game sort of thing. So I think out of the gates, we see the running game, you know, with this uh, with this spring game and, and the bevy of running back talent that USD has uh, the two freshmen, you know, got some good run in Quentin Joyner and Amirian Peterson. And uh, Amirian Peterson gets a touchdown, has a great hurdle over Max Williams. Uh, Quentin Joyner uh, plays uh, fantastically. I, I do think that, you know, some of his runs were probably as much bad defense as it was good offensive line play and good running by him, unfortunately for USC fans. Uh, but nevertheless, had a very good showing. Um, you know, USC showing that they've got a very physical, uh, very capable offensive backfield. And, and when you put a guy like Marshawn Lloyd into the mix as well, who we only really got to see one big play from him, which was on a swing pass where, you know, he's whirling and dwirling and all kinds of guys are taking bad angles and there's bad tackles. And again, I don't know how much I can say, well, you know what, Marshawn Lloyd, that was a spectacular run as opposed to saying, the defense didn't do the best job of trying to tackle him also. And, and you can kind of give credit and discredit maybe on both sides there. And so that was kind of the spring game to some extent. You know, I think there were certainly guys that were top performers. I mean, I would say overall, Quentin Joyner showed himself very well, you know, just with the yardage that he ran for and, and how he played. I think a uh, uh, very, very good looking player and, and a guy that, you know, we've been excited to kind of see run and 11-11 competitive drills, and uh, this was kind of the first chance that we got to see him, and he didn't disappoint, you know, he, he looked like the real deal, and I think Amir Peterson, who played a lot in two-back sets, and had some good pass blocks uh, in, in, during his reps, which I think is, you know, very important um, at the running back position, uh, he showed extremely well, too, you know, in terms of... How did of it offense, feel to see him in person, or see him on the screen, to, to existing? Actually, to, to actually see him running and yeah. know that he's a real person and not, uh, you know, a, a kind of like made up recruit, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was nice because I mean, all our attempts to try to uh, contact him when he committed and when he was visiting and everything else, we got a big nothing burger on that to uh, use a term from Ryan Abraham, our publisher, um, but offensive skill players, you know, uh, Zach branch, like Ryan branch, we've heard a lot about him and he, he probably was forcing it a little bit, early in, in the game, you know, he looked like he was just he was trying to make those plays and, and drop the ball that he probably didn't need to drop and, 
and what have you. But um, definitely at the end of the game, you could see not only just, you know, the, the, the speed, the suddenness, but also the physicality from a guy who's not a big receiver, but a, but certainly a strong receiver. I mean, he's built like an ant. I mean, he is a, he's a guy that uh, definitely has some strength. Uh, I thought that uh, sort Did of – you say like, an ant? Like an ant, yeah. You know, ants are extremely – they're small, but they're extremely <laughs> strong. Uh, you ever see an ant just walking around with like a big uh, leaf? You know, like a leaf I, I've ant? never I've never heard that description. I thought you said – I don't know what I thought you said, but I did not think you said ant. And then I had was like, no, I have to clarify. Did he say ant? Well, if Quinn Joyner is built like a pineapple grenade, then yeah, I yeah. think uh, you know Zachariah Branch is, is built okay. like a leaf cutter ant. Uh, okay, and, and, he, and he's strong, and he's uh, has uh, you know a certain dynamic to him that I think kind of shocks people and surprises people. You know, I think it surprised and shocked Shane Lee when he decided to go try to tackle him, and Zachariah Branch gave him like a jiu-jitsu, like just a hip, a, a judo, you know, sort of like a, a hip toss, and then kind of stiff armed him to the ground. I think that was. Uh, pretty shocking for some people to see, but you know, that's, that's Zachariah branch, you know, Zion and Zachariah uh, are, are, are absolute workout warriors, man. Those guys do not mess around in the weight room. And so if you just think, you know, Zach branch is this small little slot receiver and, and get him mixed up with maybe like a Taj Washington, you're going to be sorely mistaken very quickly. He is explosive because he's also pretty powerful. And so again, when we talked about, both Zachariah Branch and Makai Lemon, who we didn't see Saturday, but also a, a true freshman that's going to be a part of that rotation. Those two guys, the wrinkle that you know we didn't see during the spring game that I'm sure we're going to see is the fact that they could both run the ball out of the backfield. And that's something that, again, when you see the power and you see the willingness, you know, physically on the sidelines, you know, putting your shoulder down, trying to get extra yards. You can imagine what that's going to look like in space when you get those guys out of the offensive backfield. So I think that's a wrinkle that's going to come this season. And I think, you know, what we saw from Zach Branch was what we kind of thought we were going to see. And so he was definitely among uh, the top skill players that that I saw uh, Saturday. Um, I think offensive line wise, you know, Elijah Page stood out to me. I think Elijah Page played a really good game. He was very, very solid in his run blocks. He was solid um, in, in most of his pass protection. And we talked about USC trying to find that franchise left tackle. And is Elijah Page really that guy? Can he be that guy? Tell you what, he kind of um, surprised me a bit. He, with, he is him? With how he is well him? He I'm not willing to say he is him yet, but I'm telling you that he played very well for a guy that, you know, has just been on campus a few months. You know, he's definitely speed of the game. All of those different rush ends that they threw at him. I think, you know, he played very well. I think Gino Quinones played very well. I think Andrew Millick played very well. I like what I saw from him. A couple of those big runs, you know, he was in on those plays and he was playing either guard uh, or he was playing the center position. So, you know, the fact that you have a guy that can do more than one thing and is good and consistent at both of those positions is really big for the offensive line. I mean, that's a guy, when we start talking about portals and everything else, those are the guys that you really cross your fingers low-key. Oh, we hope we don't lose this guy. You know, because, I mean, he really is going to – he's going to play some minutes. There's going to be a point in time where somebody gets hurt. He plays two different positions, and he's good at playing both those positions. From what I can see, he's going to end up being on the field. And once he gets on the field, it might be one of those sort of Jonah Monheim, you know, type situations where he plays well enough where he just never really leaves the field. He may be at a different position from game to game, but he's kind of always in the mix. And that kind of 
is what I saw from him. Um, across, watching the defensive front, this is where things are not as optimistic. Um, I, I know there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of Trojan fans that were kind of uh, using a little bit of copium and, and talking about, well, you know, you know, Keon Bars, I really like what I saw from him. I think Sam Green, Keon Bars, and Jamil Muhammad were the three guys that really stood out to me. I think they all played well. I think, um, you know, with Keon Bars, he shows very good pass rush ability for a big guy. He's quick. He's got good hands. He gets a field. But it's a very sort of pass rush first uh, defensive front that they have with some of those guys. And what you see in the run fits is not necessarily as good. And you saw some runs, as I said earlier, with Quentin Joyner. Um, that run with Austin Jones in the first drive was absolutely bad. I mean, I know there's some Trojan fans out there that went, oh, the cringe factor of that run, absolutely no containment. My Mason Cobb comes up, and he's really kind of in no man's land because, you know, he's reading the play right, but it's like, do you take the outside or do you try to, you know, try to stay inside and not allow the running back just to run inside of you? And he kind of pinches down to take the inside and, and, you know, Austin Jones just sort of his lateral puts around him and it's just a wide open field there. That is very much what we saw last year from the defense too much. Those are the type of runs, you know, in the second half of games where USC's offense is sort of taking control. And then you get a drive where you get a couple of those runs and it's like, what is going on? Can't do that. You can't be a championship team and give up those type of runs every game. And that's kind of what the defense did last year and so that's something that I didn't really like I didn't see as being a big change uh, from the year I, I think in general the defensive front definitely looked more athletic it looked longer I think just defensively in general they look like a taller longer defense you get guys like Anthony Lucas in there you get guys like Jack Sullivan you know they're just bigger longer players which is a good thing from a personnel standpoint is a good thing but in terms of the execution, the run fits, the shedding blocks against the run, and uh, the consistency of the pass rush, that was a little bit uh, of a mixed bag. There was some some plays there that left a lot to be desired, and I think that there's still a lot of work to be done for this defense to close the gap on the offense a little more. Secondary, I thought, you know, was okay. I think Jacoby Covington definitely played the best. You know, he made some of those plays where – even the plays where somebody caught the ball on him and, you know, I, I would argue that that touchdown pass to Dorian Singer was one of those. He was still there. You know, he still competed on those plays. And I think in general, most of the plays, you had a couple of PIs uh, against Sierra Wright. He was in the vicinity. I think one of those PI calls was a little ticky tack. The other one was legitimate. Um, I thought, you know, Christian Pierce's uh, interception was, was a real nice interception the way he read that play and high, ball, high pointed the ball. Um, was able to make that, you know, you know, Christian Pierce making me look like I'm smart because I've pounded the table for him. In that Hell yeah, card. Gerard. Hell yeah. Uh, um, but, certified, um, Christian Pierce. But certainly, you know, you you, you want to see um, some more plays on the ball that were a little more clean in, in certain, you know, situations. And um, overall, like I said, I think the defense definitely looked more athletic. It, it, it looked a bit better just in terms of the athletes that are on the field and what they're capable of doing. But the results were eerily similar to some of the things we saw last year. Now it's just a spring game, right? The one thing I said last week when we were previewing the spring game, and we're talking about what do you take away from a spring game? Like how important is it really? The only thing that I saw last year which impressed me was how astonishingly clean 
the spring game was for USC. It was it was absolutely amazing to me because they they had I think one penalty, no turnovers, and I'm thinking, gosh, this is a brand new coaching staff, brand new quarterback. You've got 20 plus transfers that are in. I mean, it's it's kind of impossible to have that clean of a game. We didn't see that this year, and I go back to the whole whether you're taking that week off or you're you know when you're when you're doing spring ball and how you're organizing your practices. I've never been a fan of the going for three practices and taking eight days off and then going back in. I, I feel like that's a throwaway week to some extent. You basically have forgotten everything that you installed and, and the things that you were doing in that first week. And I do wonder if that kind of plays into the sort of, uh, you know, the, there was too many penalties, I think, and too many turnovers, even for Lincoln Riley. Even if you're saying, you know, spring ball is not a big deal. You're trying to work out kinks. And listen, the the devil's advocate view of that is well you also didn't play Caleb Williams a whole lot in this game there were some players like Austin Jones that didn't play a whole lot in this game there were some players that didn't play because those guys are now established starters within the system within the scheme which you didn't have last year nobody was really an established starter it was a brand new scheme and a brand new system for that coaching staff at a brand new school and so you didn't have maybe the cohesion that uh, you would have but at the same time you would argue well they've also had a year in this system, in this scheme, and everybody's a little more familiar, and you would like to see the second-team quarterback and the third-team quarterback, the receivers, and, and, and maybe the defenders, everybody just, you know, play a little more clean, and there wouldn't be as many penalties, and there wouldn't be those turnovers. So, you know, I, I don't know how much you really look into that um, as you get into the season. Last season, obviously, USC, they got some turnovers, and they very, very rarely turned over the ball. So, you know, if next season – and listen, this is a this is an easy bet. You want to bet? You want to put money on something? USC is going to probably have more turnovers offensively next season than they had last season. I, I think it's pretty easy to say that just by the way of them having almost no turnovers last year. I mean, that was uh, a pretty hard to do. It, it was uh, not something that you would necessarily expect. Um, so I think there's there's a good chance they will have uh, more turnovers next season uh, by way of many things. You know, there's many aspects and factors that come into play with that. But that's why the defense has to get better. The defense has to continue to get better because you almost expect that the offense is not going to be able to be quite as prolific, hold on to the ball as well as they do, and have the the, the you know the penalties thing. You hope does not you know become something that is an issue for them. I, I you kind of have an expectation that no, I mean I think in terms of penalties, USC should be able to be fairly disciplined and get away from those. But in terms of turnovers, sometimes turnovers just happen, man. Like, you know, you get a tip ball here or whatever. Um, you get certain players that want to press a little more uh, for whatever reason. And obviously the defenses and the defensive coordinators, they have that year of, of, of tape from your team and your offense, and they just know what to look for. They know the tendencies. They know, you know, player personnel a little better. And so that's going to reel in uh, potentially, you know, the production of the offense. But um, I think uh, certainly, you know, with the way the defense played last season toward the end of the season, um, everybody expects that to get better. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, will it happen? Because from what we saw Saturday, um, you know, a little bit on the fence as to whether they're really improving that much um, defensively. I, again, athletically, I see the potential there. But in terms of results, there was some of the things that we saw last season. A big old bucket of cold water on USC fans from Gerard Martinez. 
I don't think it has ice in it though. I think it's cold okay, water. Okay. But it's not ice water. It's more like okay, a, maybe okay. a little cold shower, maybe a little cooler than you thought, but you know, not necessarily. Hey, uh, this defense is is going to be bad again. It's not going to be good. It's going to be one of these things where USC has to outscore every team. It's going to be this 41-38 game in the fourth quarter, and USC's just got to be able to you know keep ahead. I think you know again athletically you see where they look better and and you see where they have more potential. But I mean, this is where we can start talking about Bear Alexander and, and sort of where this overlaps, the lack of being able to have someone in the middle that really forces the offense to acknowledge. I mean, right now USC has Keon Bars and they had Jack Sullivan actually playing inside, which, you know, Jack Sullivan basically was a five technique at Purdue. So now he's playing more inside. He played more three technique than he did five technique in that spring game. He's big enough to play. He's big enough. I mean, it's funny because we talked about how, you know, Anthony Lucas is not 290, 295. I know that was said several times in the telecast, but we have verified that he is not that. He's 270, and he's a guy that's even thinking about dropping even more weight so he can be more of an outside rusher. Now, that's not music to anybody's ears that knows USC's true weakness is the interior so you want some skilled players to be able to put on weight to be able to make an impact inside so we look at Keon bars and like i said i i like what i see from Keon bars but more from a pass situation i think you know in terms of getting up field and being able to 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 move the quarterback out of the pocket i think he showed some things but against the run i mean a guy like barry alexander would help tremendously because it's not only another 300 pounder but it's a guy that's just strong at the point of attack, can shed a block, and can eat space. And that's what USC doesn't have. They've got guys that can kind of move, but sometimes they move themselves right out of a run fit, and you've got a wide-open hole there. And so that's something that, you know, I think a guy like Bear Alexander could help a lot. Now, of course, there's a joke there that, you know, he'll get to USC, drop 40 pounds so he can drop back into the curl route. I don't think that's going to happen. And so I think, you know, that would free up, USC to be potentially much bigger across the front of their defensive line because you could potentially have Keon Bars and um, uh, Bear, Bear Alexander in the game at the same time. I, I mean, I think Keon is showing me enough as a pass rusher that it wouldn't be it wouldn't be detrimental to be able to have him there even at a three technique. And, and mm-hmm. Bear is is a pretty good pass rusher as well. They're certainly not the traditional. 6'4", 285, 290 pound, three techniques that you would see, which, you know, Jack has sort of developed into that a little more physically. Like, you know, maybe USC got Anthony Lucas and Jack Sullivan's weights mixed up. Because, I mean, Jack Sullivan looks more like he's closer to probably 285, 290 than Anthony Lucas does. Mm -hmm. And so he's playing that three technique. But I don't think Jack Sullivan is necessarily the sudden type of natural pass rusher that Keon bars or, uh, you know, even bear Alexander is. So again, you know, do you kick him out to the five technique? You know, can you put bear there? You know, where does it leave uh, Stanley to a Tuafu? Where does it leave uh, um, Tyrone Talele? Uh, I think, you know, Talele obviously showed some things last year. I think in the grand scheme of things, probably Stanley Tofu kind of is the odd man out there. Um, guys that, again, played over their head, I think, last year and, and did a good enough job, but 
when you're talking about like ceiling and you want your defense to to make those strides to get to a point where you feel comfortable against the big boys when you're going to go see Ohio State you're going to go see Alabama you're going to go see Clemson or whoever in the college football playoff Michigan you know those schools are going to they're going to run at you you know they're going they're going to do exactly what they did against TCU you know TCU had the high flying offense and Georgia looked at it and said okay that's great man we're going to run the ball right at you and it's, you saw what happened. And so USC can't get into that spot where, you know, offensively, they're high-flying, they're doing all these things, Heisman trophy-winning quarterback, this, that, and the other. But defensively, you know, you're working with a big big West, you know, Mountain West type of defense, and they just can't stay on the field and even stop the most simple sort of uh, dive plays and trap plays and what have you. So um, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, like I said, personnel-wise, they need the help. Uh, but they also have to just execute better as well because, you know, we saw guys like Tackett Curtis and you know, a lot of people were kind of critical of Tackett and how he played in the game. You know, again, these guys, these freshmen have been on the the, the, the team for three months here, you know, at, at, at most. And so you can only expect so much. You see the physical talent and everything there. But in terms of the discipline and, and, and being in the right place at the right time, you as a coordinator and as a coach have to give those guys a chance to be successful. And so you see some of those instances where you know, Mason Cobb comes up to make that play. That's that's like unless you're Ray Lewis, <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's a lot of inside linebackers that you can expect to make that play on the edge. That's that's a really tough play to make when you literally have the whole right side of that offensive line. It, it's just completely erased the defensive line. There's no containment there or anything. So now Mason's Mason Cobb is. Is, is in no man's land and he comes up to make that tackle and he's pinching against the line so he doesn't give up the inside but he does not have the speed nor do 99 percent of the linebackers in college have the speed to be able to take a guy that's a that's a running back to take him and be able to contain or make that tackle uh when he's going to just bounce to the outside like that i mean it, it you know austin jones saw it coming a mile away he knew exactly what he had to do he just gave a little look inside and went boop and, and austin jones is very good at that he's got good lateral feet and he was running the daylight and that was you know in that first drive and that that first drive from USC's offense just reminds me of way too many drives in the second half against some of yeah. those teams they lost games against it must have been very triggering for the fans in attendance too quick too quick too easy and it was just like you know and again the copium is well it's Caleb Williams and oh my god this offense is so spectacular and it's, you know, this, that, and the other. And you're like, okay, yeah, to some extent, you can make that argument. But you'd like to just see a little more struggle. You would like to not see these wide-open plays like that. I think that's the thing that gives you a lot of caution. USC's defense was like hot butter in a knife last year. It needs to be more like very, 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 very cold butter. Yes, there we go. We're good at the uh, food analogies here at USC football. That's that's my only contribution to your your diatribe there. The other aspect of the spring game, which you kind of mentioned with the recruiting angle, is unofficial visitors that were in attendance for the spring game. Now there were less people at the spring game than last year. Now maybe that has something to do with it being Coachella weekend or whatever. But also the weather was so much better than it was last spring game. But there was also more top not top but more interesting notable prospects that came out to this game than last year's game the top ones being 
Taylor Tatum, the four-star Texas running back at a 2024 class, considered you know by some the number two running back in the nation. Obviously, the big local interior offensive lineman DeAndre Carter, four-star Sarah cornerback Dakota Fields was also out there. But most importantly, the big most interesting thing was who didn't show up at the spring game, and notably that was Dylan Rayola. At least I did not see him. I was on the lookout for him. I did not see him out there. Gerard, we kind of talked about how what it would mean sort of if Mr. Dylan Rayola did not show up to the USC game, even though he was supposedly in town training with his uh, quarterback coach for the weekend. Yeah, and now you know, you're starting to hear a little more about could commit to Georgia um, even before the official visit that he has scheduled to Georgia, there's a lot more buzz about him in Georgia now. And certainly this is one of those, you know, actions speak louder than words in recruiting. And so, you know, it's not the end all be all. It's not necessarily like he was expected to be there and then canceled. Um, yeah. To my knowledge, he was not expected to be there. But the fact that he was in town and wouldn't want to come check it out and just be around you know, see some of the the recruits that were there, maybe chat them up a little bit. That definitely makes you kind of wary as to where his head is right now, um, having taken that Georgia visit last. And again, you know, haven't had any sources to say flat out, like, oh, it sounds like it's Georgia for sure. Or he's made uh, it known behind the scenes that it's Georgia. The way that we heard it was Ohio State a year ago around this time and how he was ready to, to make that commitment. And I think at this time he made it may have already made that verbal commitment, uh, but it was like very sort of overt. And it was very obvious as to that where that was where it was trending. And it wasn't so much that way uh, up until, you know, maybe a week ago or so, or maybe a couple of weeks ago where it started to become more and more like, yeah, it seems, you know, USC may have slipped a bit with him. And I think, you know, some of that, even coming from the Nebraska visit that he made. And I, I think that's, you know, also part of it in terms of, you know, these schools start to sort of size up the options and, and where they stand among the options and word starts to get out on that. And I think right now nobody's really feeling like USC is like the big threat to land him, uh, interestingly enough. So, you know, we'll see how this goes. We've talked about Dylan Riola quite a bit on the show in terms of, you know, what USC has done to be able to recruit him and, and they really don't have anything more they can do or they need to do, or they should do quite frankly. I mean, the uh, proof is in the pudding as they say. And uh, in terms of quarterback development and the offense and everything uh, from the standpoint of being closer to home, USC as a school academically, I mean, it's all there. If he chooses to go somewhere else, then I mean, this is the second time he would have committed to another school over USC I kind of think he's just never going to go to USC. I, I, I think you kind of have to come to that realization if you're USC and say, all right, we got to move on. And whether that's uh, Elijah Brown or that is, you know, continuing to recruit a guy like DJ Lagway, what have you, or maybe you wait around and you go into the portal because, again, you know, some of these uh, quarterbacks that uh, Lincoln Riley has had so much success with have been transfer quarterbacks. You know, take uh, Caleb Williams out of the conversation because obviously that was a unique situation with him transferring, but you just look at Jalen Hurts and you look at Kyler Murray and um, you look at the, the other guy that I always forget his name. Um, <laughs> Jalen Hurts, uh, Baker Mayfield. 
Baker Mayfield. I don't know why I always forget his name. Because he's, just, I, I he's always, not built like an ant. <laughs> I guess so. Because um, he, he went to Cleveland and he played for the Browns. That's why. Shout yeah. out to Brandon Huffman, Browns fan. Uh, the one Browns fan on the <laughs> West Coast. But, um, yeah, nevertheless, um, those are all transfer quarterbacks. You know, so it's like, I mean, I know that Lincoln Riley, his own head has to be like, hey, you know what? Come if you want to. If you don't, cool. We'll whatever. be all right. We'll be, all be right. fine. We'll, there'll be somebody that's uh, going to be in that portal that's going to want to transfer. And we've got the confidence that our scheme uh, is, is going to be able to, uh, to to insert that player. And it's a plug and play type situation, which is hard to do a quarterback, you know, for a quarterback to come in immediately and be able to play right away. But man, not only have the quarterbacks been able to come in and play, but been able to come in and Heisman trophies, uh, been able to get to college football playoffs, um, just, you know, at the highest level. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild um, from that standpoint. And it, again, it, it definitely gives you a lot of patience. I think if you're a Trojan fan and you're looking at the situation, it's just no reason to, to have a lot of anxiety about the quarterback uh, position and, and where it stands and whether USD is going to get this top quarterback or that top quarterback out of high school. I realize that it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, it's sort of uh, the anti-Deuce Robinson recruitment, right? It's like Deuce Robinson, there's a lot of things where Georgia – checks the boxes for Deuce Robinson in terms of the tight end position and the utilization of the tight end and the national championships, so on and so forth. Um, but here it's like the flip side of things where it's USC that has, you know, all of the development at the quarterback position and the tradition at the quarterback position. I mean, not just recently, but just long-term when you're talking about guys like Matt Leiner and Carson Palmer, and Mark Sanchez, um, Rodney Pete, et cetera, going all the way back. Um, USC has an extensive quarterback history and with Los Angeles and playing that position, that's a, there's a lot of, lot of opportunities when you start thinking about NIL. And so it's like hard to kind of wrap your head as to how in the world could Dylan Riola not commit to USC twice, two different opportunities to look at USC and with USC having turned things around on the field and they've got Caleb Williams as Heisman Trophy winner. I know logically it's very <laughs> difficult to wrap your head around how they could be losing out on this player, uh, even a Georgia being a, uh, a, a you know returning national champion. Um, but hey, that's recruiting. That's how it goes. That's how it goes, indeed. Gerard, we've gone fully over kind of the place where we take a break. So I'm going to call an audible. We're going to take our break now. And then we come back. We're going to talk about Ethan White and sort of the fallout of that and where USC goes now along the offensive line and kind of the offensive guard prospect they've targeted out of the transfer portal. Then we'll talk a little bit about official visits, some top lists, official visits that are coming out, maybe a little five families at NIL, wink, wink, Miami, and then some listener questions. So let's take our break, Gerard. We'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. 
Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Gerard, we're back. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm surprised that we didn't get into more of the unofficial visitors that actually made the spring game. We made it all about who didn't show, and we didn't talk about DeAndre Carter, Dakota Fields, Taylor Tatum. I mean, we have updates on the site. You know, if you are subscribed to USCFootball.com, you can get some updates. I know Dakota Fields, Great Biggins, had a really good update on him. We haven't been able to get Taylor Tatum. Uh, on the phone yet and uh, DeAndre Carter is also also kind of hit and miss you know we got the basic like had a good time sort of thing with DeAndre Carter but obviously that's a very big name for USC in terms of the offensive line and continuing to recruit well in the offensive line and what that means for the program going forward he's a big factor in the 2024 class um, and USC is doing pretty well for him I, I think uh, you know right now I think it's it's safe to say USC uh, is is among his probably top three. I, I would say probably the leader at this point. Although I know that um, you know he wants to take some official visits and sounds like he wants to still go through the process to some extent before making a decision uh, for fall camp, uh, which is going to be what I think a lot of the modern day guys want to do. They want to have that late July August type uh, decision, probably right before they get into camp um, and uh, try to win another national title at modern day. But I guess we'll go on, Chris. We got to move on. To the next thing, somebody, somebody else who wasn't there had the spring game Saturday. Well, it's interesting that you brought up DeAndre Carter because that is a good segue into what we're going to be talking about as I tease before the break, which is Ethan White, the Florida transfer interior offensive lineman left guard who USC recruited and signed in the winter offseason. The USC announced him. They they dropped that photo of him with the sign logo, not logo, a uh, graphic. And yeah, and as far as we we know, the plan was for Ethan White to finish up some classes at Florida and then enroll with USC in the summer. He was the only transfer that USC picked up in the winter that did not enroll early and sign or excuse me, play in spring ball. So he was the one they were still waiting on. He was expected to fill in that left guard spot, uh, left behind by two-time All-American Andrew Voorhees. But Gerard, you and I reported on Monday that, well, Ethan White does not look like he's going to end up at USC. Uh, It's not an academic issue, not an NIL issue or anything like that. We're still waiting on more information before we kind of want to put it out there. But as far as we know right now, Ethan White has been reported by other people to will not be enrolling at USC. So that begs the question, what happens now? As I mentioned, Ethan White was expected to fill in that left guard spot for USC and kind of be that rock and shore up that left side of the offensive line and blocking for Eisenhower Caleb Williams. Looking at the spring what we saw 
you know, going in, we expected, at least I expected Jared Kingston to kind of be that left tackle. And then Michael Tarquin could play that right tackle, which he played last year at Florida. And then you kick Jonah Monheim inside the guard. Then Ethan White kind of plays perfectly for that left guard spot. But the spring, Michael Tarquin was playing at left tackle. And that's all he played at. Uh, Jonah Monheim played at right tackle, stayed there, stayed put. The position he's manned for two seasons. And Jared Kingston, who, yes, does, you know, upon looking at him, have more of a guard body, was playing right guard. And Gino Quinones, who filled in for Andrew Voorhees at times last year, was the left guard all offspring with the first team. So USC now, I don't know really how to feel about the offensive line at this point because they do have, I would say, a hole there at left guard. Now, Gino Quinones, you know, not super experienced, did get a couple of uh, uh, key minutes last year. I believe he had one start last year as well. But as far as ready to be the full-time starting left guard, I don't know if that's the case. I don't think that's the case. So USC still needs some guard help, and they are recruiting a guard. The, one of their plan A options, along with Bear, Bear Alexander up there, is Houston offensive guard Cameron Johnson, who is making a quick work of this process. He is down to USC and Missouri. He ex- expected to visit USC this weekend as well. So USC very much in the hunt for that left guard replacement, that fill-in for Ethan White. But as far as you know, looking at the offensive line as a whole, I'm, I don't feel as great as I did as far as like just the observer looking at USC's line, you know, on paper, we thought it was going to be better than last year. I still think it'll be better than last year's unit, but I'm not, I feel like I'm backing away from the notion that it's going to be significantly better than it was last year. Yeah. And I think I would caution folks. Yes, this is the way it looked in spring, but it can change a lot over the fall you know there there are certain things that the coaches want to see from players and sometimes you got to play a player out of position in order to evaluate those things more so i wouldn't necessarily say okay mark michael tarquin for sure is going to be the left tackle at the start of the season next year he could end up switching over there and he could end up at right tackle again um they could make some changes on the interior as to who's playing where i think for sure, you've got Justin Dietrich at center. Um, but outside of that, I think you've got potential for guys to to still move around. And obviously, some of that is going to predica- be predicated on whether they're able to get more players out of the portal and they're getting somebody who can replace Ethan White. Because certainly, that's the second team All-SEC player. Uh, it was reported uh, that there's some talk you know, it's a, it's a medical retirement, and uh, that came from our Florida site. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it's not like USC losing out on him uh, from the standpoint of him going anywhere else. Um, I think it's definitely something where uh, they have to go forward knowing that it's, it's, from what we understood, and it goes along with that thinking and that reporting, um, there's, there's no potential possibility. So with that, you have to replace him. And is Cameron Johnson that guy? I mean, if we look at the comparisons, and somebody posted this on the Peristyle, 
and I won't go through it verbatim, but it was the PFF comparisons uh, with Ethan White, Cameron Johnson, and Andrew Voorhees, which is a, a very good um, sort of uh, reference point, you know, as to where the offensive line was at that position and sort of, you know, going forward, who are you trying to replace him with? And, you know, Voorhees is in the 80s across the board when it comes to his PFF ranking. And I think Andrew Voorhees is kind of an underrated player uh, for a lot of people at USC. He was just at USC for so long. I mean, this is a guy that was recruited by Nick Callaway. So we're going all the way back to that initial staff uh, under Clay Helton. And I remember when I saw Andrew Voorhees, the first thing, I was just shocked at how big he was. Like, this dude's a massive dude. And he reminded me uh, physically a lot of Chris O'Dowd. And so, you know, when I look at these other players, I, I know that, you know, with Ethan White coming in, there was a lot of optimism there because you've got a guy that has um, the, the, the production behind him and the wards behind him uh, at, a, at a power five school that's playing against very good competition. Are right, you playing in the SEC? You're seeing a lot of very good defensive linemen. So there's some consistency there. Now, you know, he took snaps off and he missed some games because of the injuries. And so, you know, that was always sort of in the back of your head, like, okay, you know, I mean, he, he ended up uh, finish, finishing the season with uh, these accolades, but um, wasn't necessarily always in the lineup uh, for, for Florida. Um, so the replacement, you know, you, you want to get someone who is, you know, at that level production-wise. I don't know if that's Cameron Johnson. Um, USC bringing him in on visit, you get the sense, like, maybe that is the guy that they feel comfortable with. Um, it is early in this sort of porthole season, the second window. Um, there could be some other players that come in uh, to 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 play, you know, uh, maybe in the coming days, coming weeks. Uh, we're not necessarily sure. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, if USC bring him in on a visit at this point, obviously they feel like this is a guy that's a priority recruit for them. And so we'll see how it goes. Not everybody that they bring in that they brought in on visits, you know, in the first window did they hotly pursue thereafter? So, you know, it's one of those things, again, there's, there's certain vetting that has to go on. Academically, there's got to be vetting that goes on. Um, and certainly, you know, any behavioral issues or anything that pops up, uh, there, there are some guys that, you know, have, have, have gone to schools from a transfer standpoint, and they've immediately been kicked out of their schools. And so there's, you know, things like that that you also have to consider. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of vetting going on with Anthony Lucas because he was suspended uh, at a certain point in time at Texas A&M. Um, but then you also have, and this is the biggest one, is the medical vet vetting. The, the, the ability to be able to go in and you have to you know, go back to high school and then you have to really look for anything, any abnormality, anything going on. And I don't know how in-depth that they can go into a, a medical checkup you know, of a player before you bring them in. but you can get caught uh, on the hook for, you know, three years for a player that is never going to play for you because he's going to have to medically retire as a transfer. Now, here's the good news. Here's the breaking news. Here's the war room scoop that you're going to get now instead of in the war room um, is that I do not believe that USC is going to be on the hook for Ethan White. It would only be for a year because, you know, technically eligibility wise, uh, he'd be looked at as a senior. Um, I don't know if that's including the uh, the the COVID waiver or not, but uh, he would be a senior. So you would only have him on that 85 for a year. But from what I understand, that's not going to happen. So USC kind of dodged a bullet 
at that point. You talked about him signing. Um, he did sign a uh, financial aid, uh, which is why USC was able to talk about him. Um, but I think that rule changed because at one point, Alabama actually had a player that committed to them, signed financial aid agreements, and then they announced that he was coming to Alabama as an early enrollee, but he ended up decommitting from Alabama and going somewhere else, and Alabama got hit with a secondary violation for announcing that he was committed and that he signed with them. So I think that changed right around that time where you know now the financial aid agreement is not uh, necessarily something that is going to bind the school when it doesn't bind the recruit to the school. Um, so it was one way basically for, for a long while. And I think that changed. So uh, as long as you're not actually enrolled at the college, you're not a part of uh, that uh, scholarship roster. Well, speaking of Cameron Johnson coming in town for an official visit and Barry Alexander coming in town for a official visit this weekend, I think that segues into our next topic, which is high school official visits. You know, we are still on the lookout for that big golden hour part two weekend. What is the date going to be for the second golden hour in 2023? And it looks like it's shaping up to be June 17th again. It was June 17th last time, right? Yeah, it was the 16th and 17th. They sort of staggered it a little bit where some guys came in earlier on Thursdays and then some of them came on on Fridays, but that was the big weekend last year. And it looks like that's just going to be USC's weekend. It looks like they're carving that out to be the weekend. Once again, as Gerard just said, they've got some names that are piling up for this weekend. Wide receiver Draylon Miller is expected to be on that weekend out of Texas, Texas temple quarterback, Selman Bridges, McKinney, Texas, running back Brian Jackson, who is, as we've noted, should be making a commitment here in the next couple of days. He has had this unofficial commitment date of the 21st, so be on the lookout for that. And then Jasper, Texas linebacker Ty Anthony Smith is expected to be taking his official visit that weekend as well. So a lot of Texas love. I hope they fly in some Waterburger for them, Gerard. Yeah, yeah. It seems like. A little bit of a theme, but, you know, you had a few Texas guys come in for the Golden Hour last year. But that, you know, obviously also included quite a few other players from other states and some of the top local players. So it just seems like that's a dynamic in which, you know, again, it's a synergy thing. You know, USC wants to have those big events and they want to sort of grab some momentum where, you know, some top players are looking around like, hey, man, I'd like to play with some of these other top players. And you get that sort of camaraderie and you can build off of that. And it, it worked last year. You know, again, it was, you know, almost two dozen guys that ended up coming in on that weekend and they get, you know, roughly around 50 percent commit rate from that. That's a pretty damn successful weekend. I know everybody was kind of freaking out like, hey, was the Luau a good idea? Uh, is there too many players on one weekend? And certainly USC had never done anything like that. So uh, it was natural skepticism to it. And you just kind of had to wait. And, and go through the process uh, of, of those kids actually making those decisions and making those commitments. And some of them didn't, you know, commit right away. You had guys like David Peavy who sort of waited through the season and we thought originally was going to make a summer decision. And at that point, you know, it looked like all Oregon and it was all Oregon. He was silently committed to Oregon in September and it just got put off and put off. And then, you know, finally decided, Hey, you know what? I mean, I'm not feeling like Oregon really wants to make me a priority. 
And he decided, I'm comfortable with USC and their coaching staff. I'm going to pull the trigger for USC. So very interesting how those things play out. It tells you, you know, you've got to be patient. Can't just, you know, after July 4th weekend, you know, look around and go, okay, hey, we didn't get any commitments yet from this, from this big weekend. The sky is falling. You have to sort of let it play out, you know, to some extent, and then kind of look at it in the rear view and say, okay, was this big event a successful event? You know, it's just like the holy hour, AKA the baller uh, bash. You know, we didn't see a bunch of commitments right after that or from that, but we said that ahead of time. Like we don't expect to see a bunch of commits come right from that directly. You know, the next day uh, it might be one of these things where you've got a guy like Brian Jackson who is going to make a commitment, you know, a few weeks later. Um, now I know one guy that USC did have uh, on an uh, unofficial visit for that baller bash was Xavier Vizami, who was the five-star safety out of McKinney, Texas, who's the teammate of Brian Jackson. He committed to Florida last week. So it was interesting to see because we thought that maybe Vizami was going to be one of those guys that they would try to bring in for the golden hour 2023. Now, not to say that he might still take an official visit to USC, you know, we'll have to see, but it was one of those things where he commits to Florida right after, basically, you know, a week after, which is not necessarily a good look in terms of your chances, you know, with, with, with a prospect where, you know, he just decides to kind of commit out of the blue after he puts together a top five, takes that visit to USC. It's basically like, okay, USC, yep. No, not going there. Got to commit to Florida. So we'll see if anything, you know, further happens with his recruitment, even though he's committed. But, you know, right now, yeah, there's that the first kind of line of Texans that USC is recruiting. And this is a very tentative list. This can change. Um, certainly, you know, there's going to be other schools that want to get guys on visits. And sometimes things just happen with an itinerary, families, et cetera, and guys start to move around visits. Remember, Tackett Curtis was originally scheduled for USC to come in on the last weekend of those June visits. And he ended up coming in on the first weekend because that weekend only had a few other recruits and he really wanted to spend that one-on-one time with the coaching staff. So we may see that with some other players. Gerard, the big question for this weekend is obviously they're going to use Lincoln Riley's house for something, but do they do luau again or do they switch it up for something else? For the, uh, the, the golden hour weekend this summer, or you're talking about this weekend's official visits? No, for the golden hour, it was the luau. For Golden Hour, do they do something? Do they do that again or do they do something? Do they have a roast pig? What do they do? Yeah. I don't know if that was sort of theme because you had quite a few Polynesian players that were officially visiting or that was just something that they felt like, you know, they had some connections to some good food and a natural event, you know, that culturally is very welcoming. It's something that you do, you know, for tourists in Hawaii. So it sort of lends itself to something like that for recruiting. Um, now, could you have a quinceanera? Uh, for, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. For, for the cilantro boys and, and do it a little different and do it a little more authentic uh, Los Angelino style. Um, you know, if, if they do that, we got to get in there. We got to go undercover. As the <laughs> cilantro boys run, run a grill in there. Look, the tacos will be bad on our grill, but we'll, we'll get the scoop. <laughs> get some side jobs. Um, but yeah, I think, um, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can go in Los Angeles. You know, it's not like, well, we're going to have the barbecue, you know, kind of thing, which, you know, you're probably going to do in the South, probably going to do 
in a lot of places. L.A., I mean, sued. You could. The thing is, you got to be careful, though, because you do have kids that are coming from places where they may not feel that food, right? Like, you know, Mexican food is pretty universal at this point. But if you go the way of sushi or you go the way of, you know, some other sort of ethnic food, you know, you might get guys who are like, I don't want to eat any raw fish. You know, they, they, they're just not adventurous like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the luau is is kind of standard in terms of the type of food that you would be. Uh, it could be serving. universally tailored to barbecue, pork, rice. Yeah, bowl, it's barbecue. Kinda. It's still barbecue, right? It's yeah. luau and culturally it's different in its presentation, but it's really at its core barbecue. So you're not going too far away from it um from from what you know most people are uh, are, are comfortable with you know um, from from that standpoint uh of course there's you know just those folks that are you know like my nieces and nephews that basically just eat chicken fingers and french fries and that's like the only thing that they can eat but uh i think most adults can do barbecue and various different kinds of barbecue so that's where the luau makes sense you know from that standpoint you're not getting too crazy i mean you can get into the weeds with a luau too but you know, the standard sort of tourism luau is not going to be too ed- adventurous food-wise. For sure. Well, it sounds like we're on board with doing the luau again. But again, if it goes Mexican, we'll be right there to uh, to infiltrate. <laughs> I don't know what that was. We know, Chris. We know. I, I don't know. I have no idea what that was. Hey, man, let's get a great transition here. And let's get <laughs> into talking about my... Get me booster, John Ruiz. <laughs> no, we're not there yet. I don't know what oh, that was. I'm, I'm so, I'm so terrified. Before we move on, we're gonna hit on a couple of quick hitter notes. Modern day four star quarterback Zabian Brown will be taking his official visit to USC the first week of June, so he will not be on that golden hour. Trojans will get the first official visit, followed by Ohio State, Alabama, and then Oregon. As we mentioned earlier. U.S. or excuse me, getting the last visit in the recruiting sense of high school is the bigger deal. So Oregon getting that last visit, that should tell you something. But USC is at least getting an official visit off the top. And then Braden Platt, the four star linebacker out of Yelm, Washington, put USC in his top eight. He's made at least one trip down to Los Angeles the other time. I believe he lost his bag in customs or uh, security or something like that, so did not make it out the second time. But I wouldn't say USC is among that top half of that top eight. But USC still technically in the hunt for Braden Platt. Yeah, not feeling USC's chances a whole lot for Braden Platt. But uh, nevertheless, they make the top eight. And um, interesting linebacker who, you know, he looks – more like a sort of, you know, a two-down linebacker in terms of being like a big guy, maybe a little stiff. But then you watch him run, and he's a fantastic track athlete. I think he's a shock putter and, and maybe, I think, number one ranked shot putter in the nation. Um, so he's a big-time track guy, and that's actually the reason why he missed that first unofficial visit to USC when the FSP team was down here in Southern California and Jason Brown and some of those other players were visiting. Uh, he had track conflict, so he had to go – back up north and, um, and and do some track events. And so uh, I don't know uh, the visit that he actually took because, yeah, the last time the FSP was down here for passing down, 
that's when he forgot his baggage at security and had to go back and they, and he missed the flight. So he wasn't down there with them uh, when they played in that seven on seven tournament at passing down. Uh, so I can't remember. I think Huff did have uh, an unofficial visit update with him at some point. So he did make it down, I guess. Um, but nevertheless, like I said, when I talked to him, he's one of these guys that very David Bailey ish. Um, if uh, we can use that as a, a lexicon reference for the peristyle at all times, uh, not a guy that watches college football, doesn't know much about college football, uh, knows nothing about USC from the standpoint of tradition or anything of that nature. So it's basically eyes wide open. This is brand new and everything that he knows about USC is basically right here, right now. And so that impression is, has got to be made here going forward. Um, uh, interesting player, but like I said, I, I didn't get the warm and fuzzies, you know, talking to him about USC uh, previously, uh, but we'll see, you know, we'll see if um, USC can kind of uh, make a play here for his official visit. I think um, they're sort of probably on the cusp a little bit there uh, with, uh, you know, some other schools like Michigan and Washington and Oregon uh, probably being at the top uh, of his list. For sure. Now you mentioned one of the five families of NIL, Miami. We were going, we didn't really know where to put this. So we decided maybe if we have time, we'll throw it at the end of the show. But we do have a segment on our in-season episodes where we kind of just look around at other schools, what's going on with them. So I guess this is kind of a throwback to that. But I actually just brought it up to you before the show even started to kind of get your thoughts on it. But I had seen this TikTok last night where it was kind of breaking down everything that's sort of going wrong with John Ruiz and his NIL venture collective, because he's the man that kind of runs it all for Miami, for their NIL initiatives or what have you. So, and it was just a TikTok kind of breaking down everything that's going wrong sort of with his company, which it's called like First Wallet or something or something like that. But it was basically talking about how the company has put off delaying or releasing their fourth quarter numbers, which is one really sketchy. And it talked about how, you know, they claimed they were going to do like a billion dollars in revenue. I think the projection was like $998 million. And then they ended up doing like 1.9 million or something like that, something ridiculous. And there was also a report that Ruiz had spent $5 million of the company's money specifically for earmarked for NIL deals for the Hurricanes. So I don't know. It seems like John Ruiz is a little bit in trouble with his company. So I thought that was interesting just because, you know, we have mentioned Miami frequently on this show and specifically John Ruiz as the NIL arm of the Hurricanes. But it, but it's just something to keep an eye on as, you know, perhaps one of the five families is uh, crumbling before us? You know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, certainly Miami has had their share of scandals. You know, I think they had a Bell Grant scandal. They had some Ponzi schemes with Nevin Shapiro. Uh, there's been some very interesting uh, scandals that have uh, been wrapped with sort of financial scams. Um, so, you know, this is another one of those sort of things where I think people are automatically sort of, I don't want to say jumping to conclusions, but they're certainly uh, very on alert 
with things like this. And, and certainly John Ruiz has been uh, very outspoken in terms of NIL and his support of the program uh, and his financial support of the program. I mean, there was some talk like he was involved in a potential new stadium for Miami uh, and, and many other aspects of the program from a financial standpoint. Obviously, Miami has more boosters than just John Ruiz. I think the one thing, if he gets wrapped up in this or, or he you know, doesn't necessarily have the money to be able to continue with NIL, twofold, one, of course, we've seen some schools have some issues promising some things with NIL money up front, and then maybe those promises not being fulfilled once those kids enroll. And that's why you see some of these big names transferred. And that's been something that obviously with Texas A&M has been brought up a lot. There's a lot of speculation that the huge surge of guys that were leaving the program, it had to do with certain promises that were made in NIL money. And then those didn't come to fruition. And those guys decided to jump in the portal. Again, that's speculation. That's rumor. Uh, but that is something that has come up with uh, various different sources. And so, you know, down the line, when you're talking about players that Miami is signing and Miami's recruiting, uh, you have to sort of look at that as a, a potential um, downfall. I would also say that, you know, although Miami certainly has more money than just John Ruiz, it's really the aspect of having a booster who is involved. I think the, the ability to have somebody who makes sure that the funds get to the right place is also a very big, important part of all of this. And this is the Phil Knight factor. You know, Phil Knight and the big expose that Oregon Live put up where they talked about how Phil had people from Nike working in Oregon's athletic department. He had people there that were making sure that those checks were going to the right places. The check wasn't just written. And it's like, here, hey, good luck, uh, go Ducks. And then... 15 other people got their hands on it, right? And it's like everybody takes a little bit of peace. Oh, this guy got a raise. Oh, next thing you know, there's a new program here and there's a new program there. Listen, these are governments. You know, these are universities that are run like government entities and you have a lot of middlemen and you have a lot of fat that's in between the source of the money and where the money's got to get to. And that's an issue that even as a private school, I know USC has had. USC has lots of rich people, but USC hasn't always had people to make sure that, hey, this is the money and this is what it's for and making sure it gets to that point without, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars missing from its original point. So that's something that, you know, if John Ruiz is not able to support the program in the same way, would be of a bigger issue, in my opinion, to Miami. It's not even the dollar amount. It's the fact that they have someone that is hands-on and trying to make sure that he can steer and make sure that uh, the financial backing for NIL is uh, actually you know, coming to fruition because those checks and, and whatever money is being paid is actually getting in the hands of the players and it's making an actual impact. Um, but down the line, you know, certainly the players that uh, have committed to Miami and, and are part of that NLA program, if that money is not continuing, to be paid there, then you would see some fallout. And quite frankly, the only guy that USC has, has lost head-to-head -to, -head to Miami is Francis Malagoa, the former five-star out of AMG. He spent a year here at St. Thomas 
Aquinas uh, in San Bernardino and um, was obviously a big time recruit for USC last year as a five star offensive tackle. Now, you know, would USC be in it if he was, you know, unhappy and, and promises were made and weren't kept and he jumps in the portal? Yeah, to some extent, for sure. I mean, it was interesting because as it was said to me during the recruiting process, and I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, his choices were sort of broken up into two categories. There was one category of schools that were being a little more brazen and a little more upfront with uh, what he and his family could make uh, from an NIL standpoint. And then there are those who are like, listen, you ain't getting a penny until you enroll. And USC and Alabama were at the top of the list of the latter. So, yeah, for sure. There's a potential that, you know, if, if something like that happened, maybe he's a guy that would be a bounce back. But in truth, there really aren't a whole lot of players that USC has gone head to head against Miami for. I think Will Smith should actually uh, lead Miami's NIL investments simply Will because of the song. You know the song. I don't even know. I mean, I, I only can assume you mean Will keep your wife's name out of my bleeping mouth, Smith. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So you're going to make him the head of your NIL because of the song um, parents just don't understand. I don't no, know. No, no. The song, the, the Miami song, you, you, you don't know this song. Look, I don't I'm know to, the Miami I'm, song. I'm going to play the Miami song, Chris. I'm going to play it right now. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That's enough of that. I'm sorry, yeah. Chris. I don't listen to Nickelodeon hip hop. I'm sorry. Nickelodeon. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. That is a classic song. And I will hope that the Peristyle, I guess those that are in the age range of knowing that song, will defend me on a, in the comments section after this episode drops. Please. Well, hopefully please do that. if Miami does that, USC is able to get some funds from Chris Rock because we all know he got the last laugh. And with that, I'm going to throw it to listener questions because that is our favorite part of the show. And if you want us to ask or read your question on this podcast, you can email us at podcast at usfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite in the subhead, 10K, Hurricane, Cilantro Boys, whatever. It will go to my inbox and then I will put it on this show. That is podcast at uscfootball.com. Gerard, we have technically three questions, but they're multi-part questions. So we have like seven questions. So are you ready to mow down these questions? I am ready for another hour and a half of podcast. <laughs> there, there you go. This one comes from Rich. And by this one, I mean these two come from Rich, as always. Gents, two questions. Let's start with the first one. I haven't heard much about Austin Jones during the spring. All I hear is the two rookies and the transfer. What's the story with him? Are they just saving him? Does he not need to prove himself as much as the others? Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Rapid fire. Yes, you saw exactly what they think of him in the spring game. He started. He had a great run. He was in on the first series. And just like Caleb Williams, he was done. So, yeah, I think to answer your question, yes. Yeah, he's played a lot of ball. You know, he's been working with the first team. You know, him and Marshawn Lloyd are bouncing back. He, but you don't need to have him out there and risk him injury. You know what he can do. He's, you know, this is going his final season, and he's played every year since his freshman year. He he knows what's going on. He knows the offense. You know, this was 
the spring game is about letting the young guys do some work. And obviously, Marion Peterson, Quint Joyner, they got a lot of work. Marshawn Lowen got a, a touch more work as well. You know, he only had that one really big play. But Austin Jones does not need to be out there running 15 plays or 10 plays or whatever. They know what they have on Austin Jones. So, yeah, they, they're saving him. He's a veteran. You don't need to wear him out for spring ball. It's spring ball. So moving on to number two, beating the dead horse that is Dylan Williams. What do you think happened with all that? How did they go from a top destination to outsiders? Is it strictly NIL or the coaches not looking into him or the coaches not looking into him as deep now? Um, the fact that they just uh, referred to Dylan Williams as a dead horse just kind of made me laugh. Um, the topic I that I, is to, <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I think NIL is definitely something that uh, I, it, it's very sort of obvious to me, you know, just the way his recruitment has played out. That is something that is an aspect which, again, there are programs that make a lot of promises up front. And I think USC probably looks at Dylan Williams as another guy like Boo McCoy or maybe uh, Chris Steele or somebody that, you know, big time local guy and they're in on. And then, you know, something happens where it's just clear, you know, the grass is greener on the other side for them and they're going to sit in the cut and they're going to just wait. And if, uh, you know, he goes somewhere else and then, you know, the grass isn't greener on the other side, they'll be there to get that transfer. And so, it kind of seems like the feel from his recruitment. Uh, I don't know that's going to happen. I don't know if that's going to come to fruition. Um, I would say that from a recruiting standpoint, it's not exactly like Drew McCoy and Chris Steele. You know, his recruitment hasn't felt that way. Um, it's weird. You know, I, I, I don't know if we don't, if we know the complete story with Dylan Williams, the fact that he could, leave USC out of his top seven to me is a statement of sorts. It's a slap in the face for USC. It's a slap in the face for Dante Williams, who is, is really been his lead recruiter uh, most of the way. And it's kind of disrespectful, you know, to be the hometown school, to have your commitment and to not be one of seven schools that you're even considering at this point, uh, this far away from actually signing is, is, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. So I, I think there's also something else going on there. And yeah, it's been argued, well, just Oregon wants to make sure USC's not involved because they, they see them as a threat still, even though um, he's not talking a lot about USC. Maybe he's not taking visits to USC. They know USC is capable of being there. So this is sort of uh, Oregon, which we all think is the, the leader still, telling them, hey, you know, go ahead and do what you're going to do. But you know, don't put USC in there. We don't really want you to, to think about USC right now. And so, you know, why would you put them in the top seven sort of thing? But I don't know that that's true. It, it definitely, from the perspective of the USC coaching staff, I would take it somewhat as disrespectful. Like, hey, you know, we had a great relationship with you. This is the local school. You know, you watched USC. You've got a lot of people around you that are USC fans and that uh, have gone to USC people that you know. You know, why wouldn't you put them among top seven? It's not even a top five. You could say, hey, they're not my top five because I don't need to take another official visit there. Top seven that they didn't make. So you're saying it's like a bad breakup. It seems hey. like it's a bad breakup. <laughs> I mean, he, it, here's the odd thing is that I spoke to him in early February and he was a passing down and he was playing for the premium team. 
And we talked about USC and he talked about he was still in communication with USC. And I don't remember verbatim what he had told me. I mean, you can pull that article up uh, if you're a VIP subscriber to USCfootball.com um, and see the quotes. But I, I believe he said something to the effect that, you know, USC is always going to be in there, you know, their hometown school. And I just need to get a better relationship with Brian Odom. You know, I talked to Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley actually called me before I was going to decommit and basically asked him not to decommit. Uh, but, you know, I got the sense like he wasn't felt like he didn't have a relationship with the coaching staff that he thought he should have. But it was odd. It was a little contradictory because then he said other things. And I know he'd been up at the school, you know, a, a few times. So I don't know. Very, It, it is a strange deal. And, and from my standpoint, he's certainly not the type of player that uh, you would write off if you're USC. He's too good to just dismiss and be like, well, yeah, we don't need to recruit him anymore. Um, I think even after he commits, he's a guy that you still pursue. Uh, but I mean, that's my opinion. And I'm not sitting there in the war room uh, next to Brian Odom and, and next to uh, Alex French and those coaches either. So, you know, maybe they do have a different opinion. Um, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that having seen Dylan Williams play in person. And just a reminder that Rashad Wadud, a graduate assistant for Oregon staff, has Long Beach Poly connections and he's really close with Dylan Williams. That's sort of one of the things I've reported about in the war room being, you know, kind of a big factor for him moving forward is that that relationship with Wadud. So that's also something to think about. The next question is sort of a very nice compliment plus a question. This comes from Kurt from Camarillo. And I said that correctly, so I don't want to hear anybody give me shit about it. <laughs> yeah, you really put all that emphasis. To Camarillo. I like that. I started listening to the Peristyle Midway through last season and became a paying member last Christmas. So I'm just give you a little bit of applause there for graduating from Filthy Casual to Peristyle member Kurt. Love the Composite Two Star Recruits podcast. I would not have imagined it would be so interesting to learn about recruiting in college football. You guys do a great job of making it informative and fun. Something you said in last week's podcast about Corey Foreman made me wonder why he has not been more productive at USC. Is it coaching, injuries, work ethic, or something else? Thanks, and as always, fight on. Thank you, Kurt, for the very nice review of this podcast. As far as Corey Foreman... Kind of all of the above, right? I mean, Yeah, I kind of it's a little bit of every column you just mentioned, sort of. I think there are definitely some coaching deficiencies early on in his career. Um, there were injuries as well. His work ethic was questioned not only by his teammates, but I think low-key Sean Nua, when he came in, said some things that gave you the sense like Corey will get there if he wants to get there. And that tends to suggest or imply it's on him in terms of how hard he wants to work for it. And so, yeah, I think kind of all of the above. Um, I think now you could certainly wonder in terms of uh, his training and him losing weight. And now he's playing on the opposite side as opposed to the Russian side, but he's lost weight. Those are questions. And so certainly those will be personnel questions if he's not able to turn the corner and make an impact uh, for USC. But I mean, um, you know, he, he, he's done some things, you know, he's shown some flashes here and there and certainly the UCLA game, I mean, that was a highlight where 
another one of those games where UCLA was just able to continue to keep scoring late in the game when you thought they were almost out of it. and They needed that defensive stand where he ended up, ironically, dropping in the coverage, which a lot of Trojan fans are overseeing USC's defensive ends dropping the coverage. Uh, but he was able to drop into coverage and drop into the curl and really read that 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 pass and that that route. You know, he sort of redirected himself. He looked like he was going to float out there to the sideline a little more, and then he sort of looped back in and uh, was able to make a, a really nice catch on that interception to uh, seal the game against UCLA last season. So, you know, he has been in the game. You know, he's gotten those reps and what have you. But I think um, the consistency hasn't been there. And certainly against the run, probably the most. Because, I mean, that's, again, what we saw a little bit Saturday where you see guys and they're in these pass rush moves and sometimes it's a run. <laughs> it's like you can't get caught up in your, your pass rush, your spin move or whatever you're trying to do and completely lose where you are on the field and your gap integrity and, and allow, you know, the, the running back to just run free right off the tackle. And so um, that's got to get squared away, but that's an issue you saw with the pass staff and some of the, uh, the defenses that they had. It just seemed like, you know, they were, they were not always aware of down and distance. They weren't always aware of tendencies and they were just out there, you know, trying to pass rush every down. And, you know, there's, there's obviously going to be, uh, exploits for that. Just a little bit of breaking news, Gerard. USC has officially offered Emmanuel Pregnon, a offensive guard and transfer out of Wyoming. So USC still cultivating some options, it seems. Just wanted Solomon to throw that out Bird there. getting a little company mm-hmm. from uh, out there in Wyoming, the least populous state among all the 50 states in the United States. And finally, when we come back, not when we come back, but oh, our we're final. Break? Yeah, no, we're not getting another break. I meant coming back to the question portion of the uh, the podcast after I diverted us a little bit to a new transfer portal offer. But Andrew A. coming in hot with four questions, and we're going to try to run through these. My guys, back with my weekly multi-pronged queries. Uh, he's giving uh, Rich a run for his money with the uh, doubling him up with four questions. But a lot of these are about Bear and the transfer portal. Actually, I guess most of them are. Let's go with the first one. Let's say hypothetically we get Bear Alexander. In your opinion, does that essentially blow the rest of the NIL budget? Or do you expect USC to still be able to pull other high-impact players? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know what the budget is. <laughs> I don't know what the salary cap is for NIL, but certainly, as we said before, it seems like, you know, that's where all of these collectives and all of these different outfits, for USC at least, seem to be focused. You know, they're focused on enrolled players. They're focused on the proven commodities. And I don't think there's a whole lot of money out there for Barry Alexander coming out of high school, you know, as, as, as highly rated as he is. And, and, you know, obviously when you're talking about five stars and everybody says sure thing, but we've seen it, we just got done talking about Corey Foreman, you know, that's not necessarily the case. And if you could get, you know, two years of seeing what Corey Foreman could do in college, it's going to make you reassess how much money you would invest uh, in that player. And, and we're looking at this obviously almost from a franchise type of perspective, how the, it goes in the NFL, but that's how it's going to have to be, you know, Billionaires did not become millionaires because they're just throwing their money away. So I don't know how much money there is to spend. And, you know, if uh, there's a a certain dollar amount, um, as I said before, 
going back to Bear Alexander's recruitment out of high school, it was interesting. And he ended up with Georgia. And Georgia is not known for being one of the five families of NIL. They're not overly, um, you know, aggressive. And, and I mean, I'm sure, hey, they're an SEC program. They know what time it is, right? I mean, Alabama does. Uh, and, and they've done very, very well uh, out of the high school ranks recruiting-wise. You know, they're at the top of the list, but they're also winning national championships. And so, you know, at a state like Georgia and you're close to Florida and you're right there in the middle of the South, you're going to get a bunch of players. So uh, it's not one of those things where I think people question as much you know, with Miami and their struggles and all of a sudden they do really well in recruiting or Texas A&M, which is pretty, had some pretty mediocre seasons and what happened and then all of a sudden coming out of nowhere with this historic class, you know, Louisville, Tennessee, some of these other schools that, you know, previously had not really done a whole lot, but then they're just, their recruiting is out of this world and they're getting guys, you know, out of places that they don't normally get. That's, that's where, you know, you start to talk about, well, I mean, NIL, that's sort of the missing factor in this recruitment. Uh, that's not necessarily so true with Georgia. And, and so uh, from that standpoint, you know, I don't know um, how much the other factors also play in for Bear. You know, I mean, how much does the exposure of playing in Los Angeles, being in Los Angeles, um, you know, how much has he actually been to Los Angeles to get a feel for the city and, and whether he decides that he wants to go that route as opposed to being in a smaller college town like in Athens or a college station. Um, you know, I don't know that right now. And it's hard to be able to project, um, you know, when he, he's not going to talk about it, you know, he's pretty much shut it down. Uh, Tony Jones, his high school handler is still obviously very involved with him. Uh, he, uh, you know, went on a bunch of his official visits uh, with him and, and was, you know, on uh, Instagram with him and, and taking pictures with him at all those different colleges when he was coming out of high school. And, you know, pops up on the sideline for the USC spring game. So um, certainly, you know, there is that aspect that this is a business decision to some extent. But in terms of, you know, is there another school that could come in with just like a bigger NIL offer and a bigger NIL deal? Which, again, talk about this. It's supposed to be illegal, right? I mean, that's that in itself, you know, saying, hey, if you come here, you can make this much money. It's not supposed to be about the money. It's supposed to be about the opportunity and the potential money. Because when you actually start to make guarantees about money going to a school, that is looking that is looked as uh, um, inducive. Um, and you're not supposed to induce these players to be able to come to a school with NIL. That's at least how it was painted by the NCAA when they made all of this legal. Uh, whether they can enforce this and how it's enforced, you know, obviously that's a whole nother can of worms. But nevertheless, uh, we kind of know what's going on and uh, we're not going to talk like, you know, we're little babies here and we're naive. We know that this is a business decision. It's just a matter of when you talk about how much, you know, is it all about the Benjamins and there's some other school like LSU or, 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 or Louisville or Texas or whoever else that come in and say, hey, you know, we're going to give you more money. And all of a sudden, you know, everything changes at the last minute. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. You know, Oregon would love to get involved with Bear Alexander. Um, there's a bunch of schools out there that would like to get involved. That's the thing. Does he take that official visit to USC this weekend and shut it down quickly? Or does this linger on and he takes other visits? Because I, I think differently than Jordan Ad, uh, Addison, who 
and I didn't know this about Jordan Addison at the time because we'd never talked to Jordan Addison. Uh, Jordan Addison was not a USC recruit coming out of high school. So I didn't know Jordan Addison from the hole in the ground. But having talked to Jordan Addison after the fact and got to know him just a little bit, uh, I mean, it became very clear to me, like, okay, if USC was good with him early and he was locked in USC early, there was probably nothing to worry about. You know, going to Texas, he could have visited a bunch of other schools. You could tell Jordan Addison is not a BSer. He just, he, he's not that guy that's going to get, you know, changed his mind real quickly and stuff like that. I just don't necessarily know how that goes with Bear Alexander. I, I don't know that, you know, I think it surprised a lot of people that he committed to Georgia. And even though there was talk that he might be decommitting and, and there, there was a, a time there where I remember there was some, some chatter there and it didn't surprise a lot of people, it never came to fruition. You know, he never decommitted and, and he didn't jump around from school to school, even though there was a lot of talk about silent here, silent there. You know, in terms of his public commitment, he stayed committed. So that says something. That's a little bit of something that you can kind of put in the back of your pocket that if he does visit USC, doesn't commit right away, but visits other schools, you know, it, it, it's it's still like, you know, if USC is is the leader behind the scenes, you know, maybe it means a little more. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. That it's it's hard. It's hard to say. The second question: lots of smoke about Bear's character. In that sense, I consider this to be like a rally's first true quote unquote culture test at USC. Does Bear come in thinking he's the man, he could do whatever he wants, or does or does he assimilate to how USC does things? I'm curious to see what Lincoln Rally's stance is on elite diva players. Not really a question, more so a statement that I would love GM to comment on. Well, I do want to add before GM gives his thoughts that Lincoln Riley has said multiple times that they vet every player that they bring in, and they also have the team vet the player when they bring them on, bring them in on a visit. They see how they quote unquote assimilate to the team, see how they get along, and they have they get feedback from the players to see, hey, do you think this person would be a good fit in the locker room? Do you think they would, you know, bump heads with people? Do you think they would, you know, not be what we're trying to build here? So he says the players do have a sense of feedback where they can give their opinion on on a certain players. And that's what that's a big part of that bringing them on campus and seeing how they kind of fit to the culture that USC is building. For sure. And, you know, the comparison recruiting wise I remember with Barrett Alexander speaking to a source in Texas was Zach Evans and so you know obviously Zach Evans had his issues coming out of high school uh, North Shore and a lot of talk about him and he did bounce around though and it was one of those things where you know actions speak louder than words and you could kind of see what was happening and that didn't happen with Barrett Alexander now I don't know anything about uh, attitude, character, behavioral issues. Um, I asked around about that. Uh, I asked our Georgia guys about it, and they didn't have anything to say about that. Really, it was it's a pretty crowded room. There are other guys there that could end up starting ahead of him. And because he felt like he made that impact last year, he was going to be next in line. And then he wasn't. It was still a question with some other good players and that was more or less what, you know, started to get him wondering, OK, well, I, I feel like I can make an impact now. Why am I going to wait around? I'm going to go somewhere where I can make an impact. So initially, I had not heard anything 
coming out of uh, Georgia that this was an issue with, uh, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out sort of thing. And like Chris mentioned, yeah, you have that vetting process that you have to do and the players have to do. And there's always a potential. You bring a guy on an official visit and he just doesn't vibe well with the locker room and, and the players that are there. And, and that could happen too. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens on the back end of the visit. I mean, honestly, I think everybody – I think everybody would like to just see it get done, you know, and not linger on quite as much. You know, I think with Caleb Williams and Mario Williams is a different story because those guys had that relationship with Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma with Jordan Addison. I mean, certainly at that point in time where you're like, everybody's like, okay, he's going to USC, he's going to USC. Pitt's making this big stink about USC. You go, okay, maybe it's a good idea for him to take some other visits. And and it's not such a, uh, big deal with uh, Pitt, you know, making all these claims of tampering and what have you. And when he commit, uh, kind of like with Mario Williams and Caleb Williams, it was sort of just this really off day. Um, it was at the back end of the news cycle. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, a Monday morning sort of thing. And you see USC actively just trying to like kind of downplay it almost, even though it was a, a big get for them, a, a former Litnikoff winner. Um, with Bear, there's been chatter, but it's really more fans that are just talking about tampering. I haven't heard it really come from anybody. I think everybody at this point understands how it works. Unless you're on a college coaching staff that you are on the outside looking in, you understand that there's a network with all of these top players and, and even guys that you know are maybe not even top players where you've got high school coaches, trainers, and they talk to their guys all the time. They're talking to their guys weekly. And so how's it going? What's going on, man? You, yeah, you guys played a good game last week. And then the kids ask, oh, you know, how's such and such doing? Sometimes they've got family. They've got, you know, little brothers that are still at those high school football teams. So the trainers, the high school coaches, you know, family, there's tons of people that still talk. And if somebody, a player is unhappy at a college, holy cow, man, that word is going to get around. And, and they're going to test the waters and say, all right, well, Who's interested? What could be a good landing point for us? You know, what, 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 what's, what does each of these universities have to offer? And what did we not see the first time when we were at, at the high school level and we're taking these official visits and we're talking to schools? What is it that we didn't see the first time? Because we went to Georgia and we thought this was it. Okay, so what's the thing that was missing and why you're not happy there? And so all of that has to be taken into account. And yeah, there's just, just going to be People are going to know what's going on. And as and, and we've said time and time again with these top players, if you're not on it before guys are even in the portal and you have an awareness for who might be going into the portal, you're way behind. You're way, way behind. If you're waiting for somebody to get in the portal to go, oh, wow, we should try to recruit him. Let's look at his tape. Let's let's figure out who we got a contact. Anybody got a contact number for him? Like, did we did we recruit him out of high school? We did. Hey, you got a number for his stepdad or or his trainer or somebody? If that's what you're doing, 24 hours within 24 hours and going into the portal, you are way behind. You're way behind, and that's just that's just how it is. And there's there's nothing you can do to regulate that at all. I mean, it's not illegal for a high school coach to have spoken to a family member or to even that 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 college football player. And get the and get the sense, oh, he's not happy here. And for that high school coach to go around and start making phone calls on the behalf of that kid, not hey, you know, he he's going to transfer or he's in the portal, but hey, you know, what's going on with your room right now? 
hey, what's up? Well, yeah, you know, I'm just going to let you know, man. Yeah, I'm hearing some things and, you know, you better be ready sort of thing, right? That's that's legal. There's nothing, there's nothing tampering there with that, you know? Tampering is when a college team or coach actually directly contacts somebody that is uh, the player himself, which was the obvious and nobody's going to do that. Hey, Bear, yeah, I know you're still at Georgia right now. Are you in class? Hey, can you step outside for a second? I want to tell you about this great NIL deal we have you at USC. That's not happening. That's stupid. You're, you're naive as anything if you think that's happening. It's more along the lines of the players being unhappy, starting to look around, and they call their people, and then their people start to kind of say, hey, listen, this is what's going on. And if you're not on that, you know, group text or whatever it is, that email chain, then yeah, you're way, way behind on that recruitment. The next question is, if we do get Bayer, please rank and order the additional two to three positions that absolutely must be addressed this cycle based on what you saw in the spring game. I'm assuming he means through the transfer cycle, like what other positions I would say right after, if you're crossing off defensive tackle, Interior offensive line, we talked about why with Ethan White. And I would say they need another tackle, someone who has left tackle experience. Those would be kind of the two positions I put behind Bear in that defensive tackle position. Yeah, I would say interior offensive line and then more interior defensive line is probably uh, the way you look at it. I mean, there's also best player available, right? So, you know, if Somebody is there as a tight end and, you know, you've got Deuce Robinson coming in and you're excited about Deuce, but, you know, we've heard a lot about Deuce maybe playing a, a little more receiver or what have you to start. You go, hey, there's a guy that, you know, we could pick up. There's obviously been some injuries at tight end and they don't have a, 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 a great amount of depth right now. That's, you know, potentially a spot where they could bring somebody else in um, from a depth standpoint. Uh, safety is interesting. I mean, We've seen them continually try to get that hybrid safety corner uh, out of the high school ranks, you know, and they keep offering guys and going after guys and they've missed on a few guys. I mean, if there a guy there that potentially could play cornerback and move um, uh, the Wallace kid from Arizona into maybe that spot, because I, I, I still think he is more of a hybrid corner safety than he is a pure uh, cornerback, a pure sort of replacement from a Kai Blackman. And so I kind of think, you know, if you're able to go out and get like a high level cornerback um, out of this window and a guy that could compete for starting job right away, I mean, that's not necessarily a position that uh, you, uh, you, you turn away from either. The final question from Andrew is last but not least, have you heard of the staff being blindsided by an outgoing transfer from last year, last year through this year, does that ever happen anymore? In your humble opinion, how far ahead do you think Coach Lincoln Riley knew that Cortland was going to leave? Gracias, muchachos. Well, based on all the players that have left since Lincoln Riley took over, I would say that he hasn't been blindsided by any of them because I think, well, I know a lot of them have been, you know, sort of talked to and say, hey, you know, we think you should look elsewhere, you know, or they've been processed where they continue to be in school. So I think all of those Lincoln Riley has known about. Now, once they start getting more high school prospects in and start their own, then we'll see maybe more of that 
can be blindsided, but I wouldn't say none of these have been blindsided transfers. And with Cortland, Cortland was interesting because Cortland was there at Monday practice, and then Lincoln Riley in his Trojan li- Trojan, Trojan's live appearance actually said something really nice about Cortland, how they're excited about him. And then the next day, it came out that Cortland was leaving. So that one was just a little bit interesting to me. I'm not I'm not sure what was going there. It seemed like there was a little bit of disconnect. But other than that, I don't think they've been blindsided by any of these guys leaving. Yeah, I mean, not blindsided to the level of Boo McCoy uh, going to Texas because that was really, really, really which was a, Which was a different staff, obviously. Yeah, different staff. Um, Corlin Ford, you mentioned, might have been a little bit of a surprise. Um, I think, you know, that was something that everybody had talked about, though, and I'm sure there had been discussions, and I'm sure that they were very aware of the potential. But given his comments uh, just, you know, 24 hours before, you kind of get the sense that maybe they felt like he was going to stick it out. Um, I don't know about Gary Bryant. Gary Bryant Jr., was another one that happened that I don't know what the timing of it, that that was necessarily something they were ready for right then and there. Um, again, blindsided might not be the right word, uh, but still maybe mildly surprised and thought, okay, well, we, we kind of thought we had more time here with him. Um, but again, yeah, not necessarily uh, blindsided in the way that, you know, Blue McCoy, which, you know, I was – reporting on all that and had sources on all that and yeah USC had no clue uh that he was on his way to Texas at that point and to be fair Brew McCoy uh flat out told me he wasn't going to Texas rumors weren't true and it wasn't but 24 hours later uh he ended up being uh announced that he was going to Texas so you know I mean it's one of those things that you know it's not always uh you can get really good sources on things and sometimes they can be just lied to you know, and it's like, OK, well, you know, you do as much as you can do unless you're going to give people polygraph tests. Um, that's the kind of that's recruiting in general, you know, sort of uh, you you have to sort of take some of that with a grain of salt. Like going back to the Josh Connerly recruitment, I mean, 100 percent USC thought that they were going to get him. And then um, I think the the visit at the last minute to Oregon, I mean, if that didn't all of a sudden change things and that made people feel a lot less confident it 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 sure it certainly should have uh, at that point but um but that's recruiting man that's uh that's, that's recruiting cool. indeed yeah okay we'll wrap it up chris no i was just i was just throw one in to end it with that's Chris Trevino. I'm Gerard Martinez. You're listening to the Two Star Composite Recruiting Podcast. We're going to see you guys next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hyundai. 